Hi everyone, Rick here. Just wanted to issue a quick apology at the top of the episode. Uh, this episode deals with the topic of suicide, and throughout there were a couple of slips of the tongue, uh, mainly with myself, but perhaps with Ben too, where we use the phrase commit suicide. Of course, this is not uh, the generally accepted term anymore. Um, it, it's quite a problematic term. Uh, we know that the proper term, or I should say maybe I know, the proper term is died by suicide. It was an honest mistake. Um, I, I do not like the term commit suicide, um, but, you know, being on, on, under the spotlight, so to speak, and having heard that phrase all throughout my life, it just kind of slipped out uh, without me noticing. So I did want to say I am sorry. I didn't mean any ill intent by it. It was just an honest mistake and something that I'm trying to be better about every single day. So with that out of the way, please enjoy the cat lady. My name is Rick Firestone. And my name is Ben Bugale. And you are listening to Pixel Project Radio, the video game podcast where we play through our favorite games and some of yours too, and then we talk about them. It's the only video game podcast, as far as I'm aware, that fully prevents scurvy. Wouldn't you say so, Ben? That's actually been proven by a panel of doctors recently, so you can take that to the bank or you can take it to your doctor. It was headed by Dr. Mantis Toboggan. Anyway, it's been a minute since we've recorded, Ben. Do you remember how to do this? No, I really don't. Me neither. We should maybe... Do you want to get some, like, checks in? You want to you wanna check your levels? Uh... Me, 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 uh, me, me. Uh, you, 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 you. Yeah, okay, I feel pretty good about that one. Like, ah! All right, we're good. Yeah, there we go. You always need to get one yell in there. Keeps the dread away. So before we dive into our first game of our spooky October run, um, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about our new Discord. Yes, Richard, you have done us the great service of establishing a little place where Pixel Project Radio fans can come together and discuss what we're talking about, um, tell us things like, wow, that was a really great episode, or tell us things like, wow, you're absolutely wrong and I'm never listening to you again. It's It's a nice... It's a nice little place. Yeah, thankfully so far we haven't had much of the latter, um, but it's been fun. We, we've got some, uh, right now, just some IRL friends in there, and we've all just been hanging out talking about video games. We talked about the new Smash Brothers reveal in real time. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, we've got it set up so people could stream, so we could all hang out and play together, talk about the episodes, and give suggestions. It's a lot of fun. And from now on, you're going to see that link... Um, in our episode descriptions. Uh, I have it set up so it never will expire. Um, and yeah, even if you come and listen to this, like, I don't know, five years in the future, if podcasts are still a thing, then you can join then too and see what we're up to. Uh, we probably will be mildly more cranky in that amount of time. But uh, God willing, we'll still be doing what we're doing. So 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it's been a lot of fun. I think it's going to be monumental, or at the very least, a lot of fun, as you just said. Um, gives us a chance to, you know, connect with, again, our friends in real life, but also to um, reach out to those of you who don't know us, and you can reach out to us. So please, break in, join us. Yeah, yeah, and once again, you'll find that in the description. While we're at the top of the show, too, uh, I wanted also to talk about a little thing that Ben started on our channel relating to October. So this is an instance where if you're listening to this five years in the future, it's maybe not going to apply so much. But if you're listening in real time, or at least um, somewhat uh, contemporarily, you can take part in Ben's new project that he's started, a horror game seating bracket spectacular. That's exactly what it is, Rick. And what we're doing is, and you can submit your games now on our Instagram page. You can DM us the games if you'd like, but generally every day until the end of the day on October 10th, I'll be taking submissions of what games you think are your favorite scary games or are the best scary games, horror games, psychological thriller, anything that gives you the chills or makes your brain go a little bit too hard or just give makes you jump, you know? That's... That's what we're looking for, and what we're going to do is we're going to have a seated bracket, and uh, for the rest of October, we're going to vote between games. You know, it'll be like uh, kind of like the playoffs in hockey, right? So you're going to have like a bracket of eight and a bracket of eight, and they're just going to go down to a bracket of four until there is one champion left, and we will reveal them on on Halloween itself, and that will be the greatest horror game of all time, period. Uh definitively no questions asked and it will be taken care of right here on our channel can you believe it and you can be a part of it by submitting your favorite uh spooky games to us and then voting on them and by sharing it with your friends we need as many votes as we can get it's really amazing that two white guys like us are able to have our voices be heard and definitive definitively rank art am i right ben (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ben doesn't know which way to go with that one. I I can't make a joke because I think the joke's already been made. Oh, God. No, of course. But yes, the grand prize winner also will have a special feature. Um, we will include that in our episodes at some point. Maybe not like right away because, you know, we're already all spooked out. But it will be included. Um perhaps in 2022, because I think we've got the rest of the year planned out, because there's not much of the year left. No, we'll definitely be presenting, um, well, we'll present the game that wins on Halloween, and we will be sure to feature an episode on it early in 2022 so that we um, we can do it justice, we can analyze it, we can talk about it, we can take your opinions on it. That's That's what we're here to do. So, but yeah, you're right, Rick, the rest of the year is basically planned out, so, which is great. Yeah, yeah, I I really can't believe that. I I I I can remember so vividly the day that like at least to me it sank in that COVID was like a big deal in early 2020. Like so it feels like no time is I mean in some ways it feels like entirely too much time has passed, but it it really feels like I've just blinked and have lived an entire nightmare and now here we are. Oh yeah, absolutely. But enough about all of that jibber-jabber. Why don't we talk about the game that we're covering today, kicking off Spooky October. Ladies and gentlemen, Bowser's Great Bean Burrito. We've got the Cat Lady. We do have the Cat Lady, which, Rick, I'm glad that you suggested this game because 
I was not ready for it at all in a lot of ways. I still don't know if I am ready for it, and I completed it this morning. Um, but yeah, Cat Lady is the first of our three for the month of October. And I think it's a nice introduction because it blends a lot of different genres together. Um, it's not strictly a horror game. You know, it's it's something that definitely has its spooks and it definitely has its atmospheric tension, but it's not something that's going to actively scare you, I think, in the same way that, some, well, something like Amnesia might, which <laughs> we'll be covering that later this month, and I'm actually somewhat scared to play. Yeah, I, um, Rick, you once mentioned that it was my favorite genre of game, and I should say that it has become my favorite genre of game, um, that is, things that are spooky, so I'm looking forward to Amnesia alongside you, um, but yeah, this one, this one's a little bit softer, um, I shouldn't say that because I don't want anybody who's, like, just got done playing Putt-Putt Travels Through Time to take a stab at this because, verily, they would be jarred. So um, shout out to those of you who are or have played Putt-Putt Travels Through Time, by the way. So, uh, But I didn't – when I did my rating on this, I did not rate it just, like, from a pure spooky standpoint, though we could do a spookometer. A spooky meter. Yes. This is brilliant. This is happening in real time. Let's do a spooky meter. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Hell yeah, brother. Why don't uh why don't I kick us off into our little mini review? Please do. At the exhilarating cross section of horror and revenge drama, the cat lady takes an interesting premise, that of exploring depression, and seemingly can't decide whether to let it tag along or abandon it entirely in lieu of a revenge story. A la the crow. You know, the movie The Crow. Make no mistake, though, this game is a must-play for anyone who enjoys either of the aforementioned genres and just drips with atmosphere. Uh, to me, like, my personal rating scale, this is an easy 7 out of 10 for me. Like, um, especially if it's as cheap as it was when I got it at $2. I mean, and it's relatively short, between 8 to 10 hours. Absolutely play it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, on your spooky meter, what would you say? How spooked were you? Hmm. Well, as we all know, uh, being spooked is uh, subjective, and our spookometer is uh, completely objective, um, and we certainly aren't going to have any um, different rating scales. Uh, I would give this a solid three and a half skull and crossbones. That's fair. I think that's fair. Out, out um, of five. Out of five, I should say. Oh, out of five. Okay. Oh, okay. Hey, man. Though I mean, those there there are some genuinely jarring jump scares in here, and those dolls in particular. And I think chapter three, maybe or two or three, those dolls are awesome. They freaked me out. I, I'll get to my my spookometer moment, and I'll I'll kind of lay it down. But for my uh, my review, my one sentence, which is two sentences, because of course it is. Uh, here it is, everyone. The cat lady, while presenting an important story with Lynchian accents, shows inconsistencies regarding intuition and audio quality. Though playable, the game comes up though playable, the game comes up short in terms of elements that could make the experience more enjoyable. Five point five out of ten. That's definitely fair. the The audio is something that I think we should definitely camp out on a little bit. Yeah, what about your spooky meter? How how spooked were you? So you gave it a three and a half skull and crossbones out of five. I'm going to have to give it... 
just because I know like my range of playing games that scare the living daylights out of me and unsettle me, right? Because that's the other part of the spookometers that it's not just all about screaming or jumping or um, accidentally breaking things with your hands. Um, for me, this one, this one probably rides at like a one and a half pumpkins out of five. Spooky pumpkins, of course. Yeah, of course. Otherwise known as jack-o'-lanterns. What are those? They're spooky pumpkins. What makes them spooky? They, they got little faces. They look at you and they say like, hey, get off my porch here. Do they hey, grow take some faces? candy. Take some candy and get off my porch here. I'm Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, suddenly in this jack-o'-lantern. So these pumpkins are born with faces. Yeah, as many of us are. In many ways, the, the jack-o'-lanterns were us all along. I've never heard of a gourd with a face. This is really... I'm going to need some dog treats. Well, in terms of the game, I and, and I'm right there with you. I don't, I don't think your review is in any way unfair. I think this game is a mark for certain people that are into this kind of thing. You know, I, I really wished... It, because this is like a low seven for me. I know our numbers are ultimately arbitrary, but this is like a low seven for me because the premise of it where it was exploring depression and it was set up at first wherein the the queen of maggots, who is a character that we meet uh, relatively early, um, was sort of almost soft established as a sort of manifestation of what depression could be um, and is ultimately that's just dropped at the, towards the end. I, I thought it was going to be more interesting than it was. And then it turned into a sort of, you know, like a revenge story, like The Crow. Like, I, I think that's a really good way to put it because it it has a lot of the same story beats as The Crow. Have you ever seen The Crow, Ben? I have not. Really? Truly. It holds up. Like, it's it's an early 90s movie. Um, I think 92 or 93, but it, it definitely holds up. It's a, it's a good movie. Brandon Lee is the star, obviously. Bruce Lee's son. I have to give it a go. No, I haven't seen it. My life is spooky enough. I don't consume many spooky movies or television. It's, you know, I wouldn't call it straight up horror. It's, I mean, it has the trappings of the cat lady or you know, I should say vice versa because it came first. It's, um, it's very atmospheric. It's very edgy. You know, when kids go through, like I did, their like edgy eighth grade period, that's always the first movie they turn to and they're like, the crow is so cool uh, and things like that. But yeah, when, when it turned into that halfway through roughly the story, like I, I was still into it, but I wanted it to be more. I wanted it to explore the depression aspect. And in fact, I think it very much drops the ball on the depression aspect by giving it a definitive source and saying, here is exactly why Susan was depressed. She wasn't depressed before. And that's not really how depression works. But we, we could talk about that whenever we get further down the line. Agreed. Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, just just a lot to unpack. And, and they try it. Feel, exactly what you're saying, Rick. They kind of it felt like they lost track of that. Like it was a really good platform on which to build the game. And then it just went full blown revenge with a lot of like 90s, early thousands grunge revenge kind of thing. Oh, the music. I there I can't handle the music in some of this. <sighs> okay. Like I, I I really was before I was I came here, I was going to rate this game a six. And I was like, you know, there's enough here that I, I can't in good faith rate it a six, but it's such a low seven for me. Um not because it's not good, because again, I, I think it's a must play if you're into this stuff. But 
<laughs> there's just so much about it that misses the mark and man the music is one of them yeah i you know you say a low seven i almost went to a four and a half on this one i'm not gonna lie and the thing is is that for me the ga- games are generally graded on a two scales of five the first five is is it playable and everything that falls under the playable standpoint and then the back five for me is like what's the story like how does it track um like is it consistent is it well written does it subvert the expectations without being as dizzy as star wars episode eight um so yeah it it just i don't think i'll ever play it again but i also can see the merit in playing it at least once i i can say that with you sure and speaking of your um zero to five scale on whether the game plays why don't we talk a little bit about how this game looks and plays Sure, that would be that would be a great thing to pivot into. So in terms of the way it looks, um, graphic-wise, it's very reminiscent to me of Newground's Flash animation, or Flash animation in general. Ben, I don't know if you um, were on that part of the internet in that day and age. Have, have, did you do a lot of Flash games? Oh, I absolutely did, to the demise of uh, our home family computer. <laughs> As is so often the case. Yeah, this this reminded me of that. It, it looked like a uh, a really good Flash game to have come out of that era. With like um, the the backgrounds are typically um, static or close to static. They they actually use background movement to great effect a lot of the time. Um, and then in the foreground are your characters. You view them from the side, um, and you can move left and right, and that's about it. Um, to go through doors, you have to just click up and then confirm. But you're mainly moving left and right. Um, when I say it looks Flash animation style, um, I mean in terms of how the characters are designed and how they move. Um, so if you're familiar with that, it's going to um, look that way to you. And I, I thought it worked, r- this particular graphic style, this particular art style, I should say, worked really well with, um, to your point, Ben, the Lynchian atmosphere that they were going for. Um, particularly when they did decide to use like movement in the background. I thought that worked really well. I would agree. And and exactly as Rick said, you view the players from the side. It is a side-scroller game. Um, the characters, to kind of give another uh, perspective on how the characters look, they kind of look like paper dolls. And for those of you who aren't familiar with paper dolls, take a trip back to like the 1940s or something, 1950s, and you'll, you might get an, a better understanding. But To be honest, Rick, I think that that's something that made this game interesting is the fact that they made this and it's very Flash style and the game is supposed to take place in the mid-thousands, like around 2004, 2005, which to me, that kind of fits pretty well. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad that they did this in, in lieu of something maybe more basic, like, I don't know, like a point and click or something more involved. Um, it was a small development team, but yeah, I, I, it works really, really well. Um, the general mechanics of this, speaking of how it plays, um, boils down to it, it's kind of an adventure game. You're going around, you're looking for items that help you solve puzzles. And I use puzzles in um, pretty substantial air quotes because the puzzles typically involve you having the right item in your inventory and using it in the appropriate way. So if you come across a door that doesn't have a doorknob, 
you need to find a doorknob, um, and you just kind of check around until you find that doorknob. Then you can go back and use that doorknob on the door. Um, the the word doorknob is starting to sound very bizarre to me. Doorknob? Doorknob. <laughs> what a weird word. Doorknob. To, to kind of build on what Rick's talking about here a little bit further. Yes, there are items that you find in your character. You play as a woman named Susan Ashworth. She does have an inventory bar that's at the bottom of the screen, and it displays everything that you pick up along the way. So should you find a doorknob, that's where it goes. And if you need to use it, you hit the down arrow to put a red square around your item, and then you use it. With, uh, But you have to be standing by what you need to use the doorknob with. Yes, and when we say standing by, we mean that the prompt for, in this case, the door would need to be visible, because if you're a little bit to the left or the right, it won't be visible, and then Susan will just say something like, we can't use this here. So it, you, you really do need to be standing in the in the right area for that to happen. And to speak to two things, you talked about the puzzles in air quotes, which um, that's just it. They kind of felt for me, well, I'll get into opinion later. We can get into opinion later. Um, but you have to be exactly by the item. And when I talk about lacking intuition, this is what I'm talking about. There are moments where if you are not exactly in the right place or if you are standing by the object but facing the wrong direction, the game is it, – it just – it's like, nope, sorry, I, I can't do this here. And you're like, okay, oh, easy killer. Yeah, and I, I mean we can talk about opinions here. That's perfectly fine. This game starts with one kind of a puzzle wherein you have to sort of go left and right following a deer um, and by following said deer going left and right, it's going to take you into branching paths. So you're not just going from screen one on the left, screen two in the middle, screen three on the right. You'll be able to branch off like upper left, but, you know, it still looks like you're going to the left, if that makes sense to you all listening. It starts off with something like that, and then it just kind of abandons that entirely for a find-the-right-item quest kind of deal, which is mainly how the most most bulk of the game plays with a few other things here and there, it I don't know. There are so many things in the beginning of the game that are set up that are just not followed through upon. That And that that's one of the reasons that this game, um, it doesn't bum me out, but I, I wanted to like it more than ultimately I do. It's because it sets up a lot of stuff and then just kind of, drop, kind of drops it. Um, and for, for what it's worth, I don't know if you read this, Ben. But I, I did read somewhere, I can't remember where, but um, I think the development team was somewhat rushed in completing this. Okay, so I don't want to sound like a bum, but I looked all over the place for everything development-wise, and I have found I found some basic stuff, but I have not found any like backstories the way that we have with like Majora's Mask and with you know Mario and Spyro and all those kinds of games. Like I've not found any like development things but i would believe that it was rushed yeah there's there's not a lot out there um just we we went over the inventory system we went over the quote-unquote puzzles um there's also a quote-unquote choice system um largely choices don't matter in this game except when they do um they do for just one ending there are four endings three of them quote-unquote bad and one of them quote unquote good and i have a lot of problems with that too we could talk about that when we get to the end um but choices 
generally don't matter until the very last chapter. You can say whatever you want. There's a lot of choices that allow you to build your past um, to no consequence other than lore, which I think is cool and good, mm-hmm. um, particularly thinking about, like, Susan's relationship with her husband and that mystery caller. That can go in a couple of different ways, which is pretty interesting. I think that's a really great mechanic in this game, speaking just completely candidly. I love the fact that you're in the moment at that at that particular moment in the game. You are in the moment and suddenly you are telling your past to someone and you're making it up like you are creating your past in that moment. And I think that's a really cool idea. But again, it's one of those things that they did once and then it's gone. And Rick, I mean, whenever you called that out, that was something I tried to figure out what was missing, and that's the missing through line. Because at the beginning, I don't want to say, I don't want to get into it too much, but it gets, it, it's kind of psychedelic. It's kind of crazy and kind of interesting. And then it just goes a different, it's all over the place. Um, you're talking, to talk gameplay a little bit further, to build upon some things you said, or at least kind of piggyback. Yeah, there's, it, it's kind of like, a puzzle game and a fetch quest had a child. And that's what drives me a little bit nuts about this game because I'm not wild about fetching for the sake of fetching. Um, and then some of the puzzles are, I don't know, some of them are appropriate. Some of them feel like a five-year-old could do it. And some of them found feel like they're more for a 91-year-old with unlimited amounts of time on their hands. You know what I mean? I Yeah, I know what you mean. I I think at least it's nice... That and this is really damning with faint praise, is that there's no explicit fetch quest. Like there's never somebody that tells you, "Go get this item and bring it back to me." That's at least nice. It's mostly just finding stuff that you need to progress. And sometimes it is obvious. Like there's a can of red paint, and for some reason you can't pick up the red paint until you open it up. So you need something that opens it up. And then you find a screwdriver, and it's like, "Oh, okay, this is obvious." Or um, in the same sense, we need something to alter this dress. And then you find scissors. And it's like, oh, okay, this is what we need. But again, that's really damning with faint praise. It's it's early 2000s adventure game stuff. Um, it's not great, um, but, you know, it's tolerable. Yeah, no, and you're right. But but I guess nobody is telling you, oh, go get these things. And that that makes it better. What kind of drove me insane was... When it was like, ah, yes, use your intuition to grab this rag, that nail, a hair dryer, three cans of baked beans, and make a machine gun. And you're like, how in God's name? Now, this doesn't actually happen in the game, folks. That's not what happens. But there are some things that you have to do that are like that. And you're like, why would I use a baby doll's head to make a mace? I don't know, but I did. I liked that moment just because of like the ambiance it was giving off. Because I, in that moment, I also had like a lug nut. That I was like, this is the answer. Like, this is what I... And then you attach a baby's head, and I was like, this is just fucking cool. You know? Um, what what I thought of whenever you were giving that explanation was the scarecrow. That was by far the most frustrated I got in this game in terms of finding and putting items together was was the scarecrow. I, I didn't... I didn't even... I mean, I guess it makes sense because you got to get rid of the crow. But at the time, I was like... I, I have like... I have, I, I don't know, I had some kind of a weapon, like a knife or something or a curtain rod. I was like, I could just shoo the thing away. Why do I need to make a, a scarecrow with a volleyball? You know, because, again, 
well, I was going to say something funny, and then I realized I have nothing funny to say. This just comes down to the intuition thing. Like, it just doesn't consistently, it just doesn't make sense to me. And that's not, again, I'm not saying that this game isn't for someone. Like, I'm sure that this is someone's 10 out of 10, and I want them to love it, and I'm not discouraging them from loving it. I'm just saying this one didn't didn't fit me. Rick, would you like to talk about, in terms of developing, would you want to talk about audio quality? Because we, uh, we definitely both brought that up. Yeah, that's the next thing that I have on my list here, um, is voice acting. Yes. So, Together. the voice acting is uniformly, uh, what's the word? Not mediocre, but fine, but it, it, it varies wildly. So, um, there are some good voice acting moments. Um, the exterminator guy was one of them that I thought, you know, did, did his character well, um, who is also... The voice of Salad Fingers. Did you know Are that? You ki- Are you kidding me? No, it's the same guy. Of course it is. Um, some of it is kind of bad, um, like Susan's husband, Eric. Like, that's just not a good voice acting performance. And some of it is downright laughable, like our, oh, our do you good want me to friend. Do it? <laughs> please, by all means. Free to tickle. Hello. Hello. I'm free to tickle. It, it's yeah it's the voice acting is just all over the place but i if i had to condense it to an average it's north of mediocre it's fine what i what did you think i don't think i would have minded the voice acting as much had the audio quality across the board been consistent um for me I, so i've started playing destiny a little bit which is very unusual for someone like me but i've started playing it that's got some really great voice acting um kingdom hearts also has some pretty decent voice acting if i'm speaking honestly like just kind of throwing out some things and there are some other games we've played that have good voice acting um but this games was very it kind of i'm not trying to disparage them if they were like friends and they were just like trying it out like i don't want to discourage them but like you have susan ashworth whose microphone was impeccable it was consistent. It was there. Her voice, I thought, was generally pretty good. But there were other voices where it was extremely craggly or cracky or, like, you hear all of, like, the the fricatives a little bit too sharply. That drove me nuts. Some of them sounded like they were recording on AirPods and they were, like, pushing the envelope of what the AirPods could even pick up. You know, like they're hitting that threshold where it starts to distort. Yep, yep. It was kind of like they would get into the... You know, you could tell that they were in like the 120 decibel range and like the microphone just couldn't handle it. And it, yeah, it, 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 it takes away a level of atmosphere when that happens. Yeah, uniformly, it's certainly not it's it's not standout and it's very much, you know, we've seen indie studios go above and beyond with this kind of thing. Um Early 2010s, I don't think this would have bothered me or anyone so much. Um, Mm -mm. But, you know, things have evolved to a point where um, it's hard to fault them overall, with the exception of, like, some of the really obviously bad microphones they were using. Um, But overall, this is not something that you would brag about with this game. Nor, in my opinion, is the music, which can be boiled down into three different categories. You've got your punctuation and atmospheric stuff, like the piano, like scare chords. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've got the indie rock 
indie folk rock that kind of sounds like it was written by the developer's friends. And he was like, all right, I'm going to throw you a bone, put your music in here. And then you've got the industrial grunge rock nine inch nails that just gets blasted into the speakers at various points (laughs) that never, ever, even once uh, was good to me. No, and actually, it's really funny you say what you do about the person writing the music because I believe the person who wrote the music for the game, um, you know, the, the uh, I'm not sure if it was all of the background stuff, but I think his name was uh, Mikhail Mikhail Mikalski, and the designer of the game was I can't say this name for the life life of me, but it's the exact same last name. So I think that they were brothers, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, well. I mean, not to throw any shade at his brother, but it it shows because it's it's just that very generic dime a dozen kind of acoustic guitar emo indie rock um, with a singer that was everywhere in two thousands and twenty tens. Yeah, and and uh, to to be honest, the the from an audio standpoint what kind of connected with me the most was the soundscapes at some points some points not all points and then otherwise like the loose accompaniment of like piano whenever they would try to use it for like to enhance a moment it actually maybe on a scale of 1 to 10 of scaring me it was maybe a 1 like i just didn't find myself grasped by the music like um like i have been in other games like five nights at freddy's yeah, yeah, and to be fair, I, I think the punctuations with the piano scare chords and some of the other music that acts as atmosphere, I, I think it does work. Um, it's not bad, um, and I think that's when the mu- the music and the sound um, sound design in this game is at its best. I just, I, I can't for the life of me figure out why they wanted to include that, like, really aggressive Trent Reznor-esque, like, industrial rock that comes in (laughs) it comes in at like three different points in the game maybe more um one of them i guess kind of works after you shoot the cannibals you know or take care of the cannibals shoot the wife and you kind of walk out and it's like just you're just hit with blaring nine inch nails while you're wearing a gas mask carrying a shotgun i guess that that's fine you know but here comes the question rick how many times did they do that? How many times did we have a moment like that? <laughs> I mean, that's the only moment like that really exactly. throughout the whole game. <laughs> it's it's a lot of different threads put together, and they do successfully make a rope, but it's not all one color. That's a great way of putting it. And, you know, I it, it it's almost like they had a lot of ideas about how they wanted this to go. Or, at the very least, a lot of ideas of what they thought would be good. And just didn't have the time to fully flesh out whether they worked together. Um, because, you know, the the depression aspect is good. The revenge story aspect is good. And even to a point, the, the quote-unquote puzzles are good. But the way they interact with each other does seem incoherent at times. Um, it ultimately works, but I, I think your rope analogy is really good. It's. I mean, that's kind of the only way I can think about it because they they did a lot of good things, but it was still not as cohesive as it could be. And that's. I, I have a problem with games that have identity crises throughout them. Um, and again, there were some. I said earlier, Lynchian aspects. Like there were those um, two girls that showed up at one point. And you look at them and you're like, oh, this is kind of 
unsettling, but then that's the end of seeing anything like that. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're done here. Yeah, there's a lot of um, blurring reality within this game that takes place. Um, Some of it bordering on the supernatural, and I mean, there are supernatural elements to this game, don't get me wrong, but um, this blurring of reality... I at many times thought that that was going to play way heavier into the plot than it actually ended up doing. And at the end of the day, I was thinking like, you know, why are they doing like why are they doing this? They're, are they doing it just for the sake of doing it? And then it hit me. I was like, yeah, of course they're doing it just for the sake of doing it. It's it's literally like, I mean, we think about Lynchy and we think about David Lynch. He's doing this stuff just for the atmospheric effect. Like that is its purpose. It is, I mean, it's relishing in not being weird in this case, but it's relishing in being off-putting and creepy and atmospheric to that very point. And I I like that. You know, I like that. I, I do wish that they maybe did a little more with it. But, you know, those two dolls that play the one of us tells the truth and one of us always lies when they do that for whatever reason, um, those dolls are incredible when the queen of maggots is first introduced. That whole sequence is really good. Um, yeah. There's just a lot here that atmospherically really works, but then they don't do a whole lot. Even the big twist about Susan's inability to die when she is confronted about that fact by Mitzi, she gives this really horrible response uh, that we'll talk about. And Mitzi upon hearing this is basically like, that's so crazy. You're so crazy. And I was like, what the actual fuck? Like, we, <laughs> what the actual fuck? Like, we could have done so much more with this. Um, but being what it is, it's fine. It's I like the atmosphere. It's good. Um, they did drop the ball on it a lot, though. I would agree. Um, let me check my notes here for a moment. Something that bothered me in the game, and this kind of goes back to gameplay, and we can talk development in a second. One thing that bothered me, and this is just something I need to get off my chest, is the fact that you don't have the ability to just save, like, and to not pause the game. That's what I mean. You can save the game, but you can't pause the game. Like, mid-conversation, if you're in the middle of listening to someone talk in the game, you absolutely cannot pause it. So if you're going to play this game and you really want to like bask in it, make sure that nobody else is around you for hours at a time because if they come in to talk to you, you won't be able to pause the game if someone is talking to you and you don't know how long those dialogues are going to go on. Just saying. Yeah, that's a real mechanical low point for the game. And I'm glad that you brought up saving because I almost forgot the save system is incredibly unintuitive. Like, you can save any time you're not in a dialogue conversation, but it, for me, like, I, I would have, I always save twice in any game that I do, because I was of the PS1 era, where memory cards would just get wiped if you put in the wrong demo disc, or sometimes they would just get corrupted for no reason at all. So these days, I always save twice, at least. And so I would save, like, one file Rick, all lowercase, one file podcast, and they would both be the exact same. And then when I would go to save over it, sometimes I would just have two files that said Rick, two of them both being at different places. Sometimes it would just delete the podcast save for no apparent reason. Then I would have two Rick files. Um, sometimes the quick saves just would never go away because you can quick save in this game, and that's honestly the best way to save. It's it's just a mess. Like I couldn't figure out how to properly have two saves going for like three chapters. And I don't want to call it broken as much as I want to call it an oversight. A big oversight. 
And that's that's something that really, really bothered me because there were some bits of dialogue that I just straight up missed because I'm a human being and I'm doing other things with my life and I go to pause the game and it's like, oh, I suddenly, this has to happen. Or, oh man, I forgot, like there's, I've got food on the stove. No, you don't. You have to listen to so-and-so finish talking first. You let that food burn because Rita Tickle is telling you all of her experience with children. I'm Rita Tickle. I sat from the agency. She had like a lisp too, which just added to it. It was magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see you. So the last, I guess the last thing to talk about are just basic numbers. Um, I couldn't find how much this game is sold. Couldn't find anything. Literally all I could find was this was developed by Harvester Games and released in 2012 for Windows. Um, and it reviewed positively, almost unanimously around 8 out of 10. It's currently sitting at Steam at 93% of all time, like all time positive reviews. So, but other than that, like I couldn't find really much of anything. Same. And I tried, I was like, sales numbers? Like I Googled everything and I found like nothing. What are you going to do? I mean, it's available on Steam. It's available on GOG, I think. I think it has turned up in like Humble Bundle stuff before. And it's almost always cheap. So it's it's a low investment. Um, it's not perfect. But for the price point, you get a lot out of it. Yeah, I mean... Here's the thing, and, and this is just kind of, I don't want to say a warning, but like a word to the wise. This is a game that should you get very lucky with some puzzles, you will complete this game at a pretty reasonable pace. But it's, again, intuition is not always there with this game, no matter how intuitive you are. So I would, I would definitely say brace and pace yourself. I think that's good advice. I, I generally would always stop at the end of a chapter, regardless. So, and that's mostly pretty good. I think chapter six needs to be cut into two or three pieces if you're playing it. But yeah, otherwise a chapter a chapter will take you roughly forty five minutes to an hour. Not so bad. Yeah. Well, with that, do you want to? Is there anything that we didn't talk about before we jump into the story? I don't think so. I think we've covered pretty much everything. I just. I ask your forgiveness and patience in advance, Rick, because there are so many things. Like, I've played this game, admittedly, with a guide to help me through some of these things. And so there are some details that I think I straight up missed in this game just because I was trying to get through things. So there's this game has way more stuff in it than you need. And that helps with the exploratory, um, the exploratory side of it. But good lord, I'm sure I missed things. And that's fine. You know, it just... As a uh, as a game, I think there are parts of this where using a guide is fine. Um, I'm not opposed to guides at all. I'm not that kind of. I'm not going to gatekeep games and say you're not a real gamer if you if you use a guide because that's bullshit. Um, but then also the real life aspect, Ben. We've been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Um, November is a very busy month for the liturgy, as we all know, and that's coming oh. up. So you're prepping for that. Um, and we are just humans doing this for fun. So I. No, no apology necessary. No, um, yeah, it's it's all good. It's all fine. Just if you cover my butt, I'll cover yours, both literally and metaphorically. That's uh, this is actually completing the circle because that's the first thing you ever said to me and how we first became friends. I feel like that could be true. <laughs> yeah, is it? Who uh, knows? <laughs> it's probable. I don't know, but we ended up living together, so something worked out. 
All right, so that's a pretty natural uh, segue into the opening <laughs> yes, suicide of yes. the game. So I guess let's start with the story. watch this opening scene and what's happening is is that our main character Susan Ashworth is and I kind of got the sense Rick that she was kind of speaking it after she'd written it but she is um, reading this suicide note that she has composed and she talks about her cats and how um, they've been with her Um, she has decided to take her life by consuming a number of pills that she makes note of saying that they were obtained legally, not illegally. Yeah, yeah, and that's how the game begins, is your character commits suicide. She's a very lonely person. Um, She doesn't much like anybody else. Nobody likes her. She only has her cats. Then chapter one starts. This is House in the Woods. So you start as Susan in a field. So right away, you know, after we see the suicide of our main character, we are playing as her. So this is either, and it's not made clear right away, a prequel or we have supernatural elements going on. That is actually made clear pretty quickly, but not immediately. Um, We find a padlocked shed. You want to go into it, but you can't. And this is kind of introducing the game's mechanic of you want to go somewhere, so you need something to get through this obstacle. So you have to go all the way to the right, and you find some wrecked cars and an ambulance in, like, a garage-type situation. And you can't get in the ambulance at first, but you do hear knocking. So this is already some surreal imagery. Um, You also can't go any farther to the right, so it forces you to backtrack, which, again, it it introduces this weird backtrack mechanic that applies to this chapter and this chapter alone. Like, this never comes up again. No, no, it doesn't. And and I think what's happening is that um, these cars and then this ambulance that we find, we can't go any further to the right. Um, though it says, you know, it kind of feels inexplicable. It seems like a tunnel was blocked or something. It, there's some there's some gaps here. So as you try to go back to the left, um, the knocking on the ambulance gets louder and a stretcher falls out and it's your corpse. So you're looking at your corpse on this stretcher. So immediately... It's clear, okay, this is not a flashback. We are in some surreal David Lynchian type shit. Inside of your corpse's mouth, you find a key for the shack. So that's where we need to go back to. Uh, A deer runs off in that uh, general vicinity. The deer plays an important part in this part of the story. So you open the shack, and inside there's this, like, industrial machine. So there's a switch to start the machine that's hidden behind these boards, but you can't actually pull them off, not with your bare hands. They're situated in a way that you can like look into it and see that there's a switch back there. But you're not strong enough to pry these off with your bare hands, and there's nothing else that we can do in here at the moment, so we're forced to leave and backtrack to the left yet again. Yeah, so so we leave, we leave this padlocked building that we have broken into uh, and leave the machinery behind, though it's become apparent that we need to get behind the boards. It at least guides us to that. Uh, you continue, and because it's side-scrolling, we continue to the left. 
And that is like you're looking at your screen and you're looking to the left. For those of you who are like doing stage right, stage left, don't overthink it. Just look at the screen and you move to the left. And then you see this, the same deer from earlier and you just keep following it until you come upon a body that is hanging from a tree. Um, you can approach the body and try to interact with it, but it's too high up and so you can't do anything. But it seems to have something around its neck um, other than a noose, to be honest. And we we should say it's not just anybody, it's your body. So that's it's your, your corpse hanging there. <clears throat> it's true. Basically, every body you interact with at the beginning of the game, as as we'll get to, is is you. Base. It's kind of really holding up a mirror to the fact that you've done what you've done. So you try to untie the rope from behind the tree, and it doesn't seem to work. Um, I I don't know why that didn't work, Rick, but that was kind of frustrating to me, if I can be honest with you. I think untying it doesn't work just to let the player know that you need to cut it down. Yeah. And that's something that we find pretty soon, because if we follow the crow, there's a crow that will be on each screen, and if you go left or right following the crow, you'll get to a different path, and you find a a uh, completely slaughtered deer with a knife in its belly. So you're yes. able to take that knife off, um, or, yeah, off, take the knife out of the deer corpse, and um, now you have a knife to cut the body down, and you exit the shack, and you're inexplicably outside with the body again, like the shack to yep. the left of the body. Um, this game does that a lot, but, again, only in this chapter. <laughs> it's so weird. I don't mind that kind of stuff either. I don't mind that level of soft world building. It's the fact that they broke it and then went extremely hard with some things. That's where I got frustrated, but I'm not here to just gripe about it. So so we have the knife. We've exited the, the, the other shack. I guess the shack, not the shed. And we can use the knife. And this is kind of intuitive. You're, you're right, Rick, to, to cut down um, the body. And we find around her neck a key it is the gate key and we can take that and we continue to the right and there's a fence that we have not been able to access or get through before and there are these heads of these animals on it and we have to enter and uh to continue our journey yeah there's like decapitated pigs and deer and goats just like piked onto the fence it's At least again it's not my head up there yeah yeah that's that's her reaction to this at least it's not me up there she's amazingly even keeled throughout this entire game um but then again i guess she presumably just killed herself so her worries at least for now um are minimal so you open that gate and inside of it there's a house and we meet this old woman she speaks with um it's a french accent right it's a french tinged accent it's loosely French, and she's got like three levels of um, pitch to her voice, so it's kind of demonic sounding. Yeah, it's the classic, uh, if you want to make a character sound evil, add like an octave displacement, one octave below their voice, um, and you have our old woman, who we come to learn is the Queen of Maggots. She she doesn't tell you her name immediately. She says she has many names, and you can say, are you the devil, are you death, are you God? Um, and she says, no, she uh, she comes when there's nothing to give, or excuse me, she comes when there's something to take, but nothing to give. Yeah, yeah. Which is a great line. I And, and I really like this character. I wish there was more done with it. But yeah, she tells you her name is the Queen of Maggots, and she says you are her guest of honor, and she has an offer for you. 
So she talks with you a little bit about how she knows all about your suicidal desires and your sad life and says that other things await you besides your death. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I will say that in all of this dialogue, you so it, it feels like you have an ocean in which to swim, but it's really a funnel. No matter what you choose, you will end up at the same um, response of this offer. But she invites you inside because it's getting cold outside. She invites you in to speak with her. I see your smile over there, Rick. Um, and you follow her in and you talk some more. And during um, during this dialogue, um, she talks about these five people she wants you to kind of... I, I can't understand. I know that you don't kill all of them, but she, she refers to these people and she calls them parasites. Well, you do kill all of them, actually, in the game. I kind of lost track of how many people I killed, to be honest. (laughs) So there's, I think you only kill them. So there's five, and she says that she wants you to kill these five parasites. Um, She tells you that they might seem like ordinary people. They might try to befriend you, but ultimately they have nothing but cruel intentions, and they want to kill you. She says, quote, you will become my hunter, serving punishment for their sins. She says that they might try to befriend you, but none of them really do, except for except for one. They're, they're just all objectively bad people. And yeah, so she says, you are going to uh, kill these people, and if you don't do it, more innocent people will die, because these people are monsters, and you are putting an end to their sins. You know, and that's actually something that did bother me is and and I'm not going to just sit here and camp on things that bother me the whole time but like you talked about the one person who did seem like they tried to befriend you I was looking for that at every turn of the game because of what she said and it only happened once and so that kind of left me hanging and not like in a good suspenseful way not in a not in a spooky way no and that's why on my spookometer uh, I only give it a one out of five I I might lower it to a point five because I just didn't I didn't jump I didn't get the the willies I haven't had a case of the willies. Not even one full pumpkin at this point. No, not even one whole pumpkin. Uh, and uh, nowhere specific. Uh, well, never mind. Um, so after she says that more innocent people will die if you refuse, um, you can object or not. Um, it has, Like you said, Ben, it has the same outcome. Um, but she tells you that she actually made you immortal. So you're going to keep coming back to life until all of the parasites are dealt with. So she has given you your your own unique punishment. You know, what what can you do to somebody who only wants to die? Well, you take that away from them. And now they can't die. She cannot die until she takes care of all of these parasites. She keeps coming back. And we'll see that happen multiple times throughout here. And I think, I personally, I think it's done... I, I think it's done well, but handled inconsistently, if that makes sense. But we can we can talk about all that whenever we get to um, the specifics. But um, now she she uh, wants to persuade you, so she takes you outside. That's right. Yep. So, and that's where we find uh, she leads you into this room, and there's a cross. And who's on the cross? Who's on the cross, Rick? It's you. It's Susan. Okay. <laughs> It's Susan again. Um, and this is, this is, I'm not going to lie, this was kind of an unsettling scene. This was super cool because, like, the environment starts glitching for the first time. And I liked that. That's the stuff that I can do with. And there's a crossbar, or not crossbar, listen to me thinking about hockey. There's a crowbar <laughs> that you have to, no, there's no crossbar. There's a crowbar that you have to pull out. 
um, because it's pretty much the only item in the room that you can um, interact with. I mean, you can look at your own body, but um, you kind of figure that you're going to need the crowbar for something, and then you also can use your own intuition and think, oh, there were those planks in that one shed. This could at least pry them off. Right, so the Queen of Maggots stops the illusion, and you're back at the house, and she says a sacrifice must be made to go back to your world. So we have this theme that runs through the game, a soul for a soul. Uh, nothing new. We, we see this all the time. But there are five candles, and she says you've got to blow one out. That'll extinguish somebody else's life, and then you'll come back to life. But she also mentions you need to shed some blood. Um, you can press her on this, and she says it's not much, just a sharp scratch. Um, which we will find out what that means here in a minute. And then you blow out one candle. Uh, you don't get a choice in this. And it sort of cuts to a man that hangs himself. Um, this isn't like a character that we ever get to meet or somebody that we know. It's just showing that for Susan to come back to life, um, which she must do, she must take somebody else's soul, um, presumably somebody that wasn't going to die, but I'm not really sure. Um, there are two other games in this series, in this general world, that expand upon this stuff, as far as I'm aware, um, but neither of us played those, so we can't really speak to that. But yeah, you do that, the man hangs himself, and now you're outside again, where your corpse was hanging. Exactly, and Rick, one question for you. I, I was not aware of this, but does the candle you choose, is it always the man hanging? It is. So I, I started this game once before, uh, and I put it down because that's when we decided we were going to do it for the show. Um, and I picked a different candle each time. It's always going to, they always happen in the same order. So it doesn't matter. Right. I didn't know that for sure. So that's why I was like, well, wait a second. We both got the hanging man, but could we have gotten something else? So thank you for answering that. But um, as Rick uh, left us off, yes, we show up where the hanging body was and, and not the man, your own hanging body was um, somehow which is fine. I like soft world building. But because we know where we are, we can kind of put two and two together and realize that, oh, the shed is nearby where those planks were, where that thing was that I'm supposed to do or whatever, because you don't know yet. And you walk all the way to the shed, you enter the way that you did before, um, and you can use this crowbar on those couple of planks on the wall, and there's a hole. You examine this hole, and you can reach inside of this hole. And... Uh, yeah, this this I don't want to say this got me, but this this was interesting. I thought this is definitely the first like jump scare of the game because when you reach into the hole to press the button on the machine, uh, a blade comes down and cuts off your arm, and it's at this point where you think back to the Queen of Maggots saying it's not much, it's just going to be a sharp scratch, and you can say, well, that was a lie, um, and yeah. blood is just going everywhere, um, and bloods your blood gets on the machine and it starts it up. And as you're walking out uh, to leave this area, that's when the really intensely loud early 2000s alt machine core nine inch nine nine inch nine nine inch nails music starts blaring, and you get the opening credits of the game. Yep, and that's um, yeah, that's how this party gets started, and you feel like oh, this is going to be a consistent thing, and it isn't, which is, you know, it is what it is, um, and that's whenever we reach what is known as chapter two, and we start with this uh, second first breath. Second first breath, excuse me. And we start this chapter by seeing a psychologist, like a doctor, speaking with Susan. Um, and 
we learn about his appreciation of the arts and how he views his patients in in kind of a similar light. Um, yeah, really not okay for a doctor to say, but um, it, it comes back in how this all plays out. Yeah, because you hear that and you're like, that's, I mean, there's so many things wrong with that, but there's so many things wrong with it, which kind of keeps it compelling from a story standpoint. But um, generally, no mental health expert should ever be saying, oh, I compare my patients to pieces of art. That's a little bit strange. Um, the The doctor is speaking with you and you learned that Susan was a nurse and was aware of this whole process. Um, so she agrees to work with and communicate with the doctor. Um, but all she really wants to do is to get out of this, quote, ward, end quote. Yeah. So as the doctor asks about you, um, it flashes back to after your suicide attempt. Um, there are nurses that are checking on you, stuff like that. There's a lady nurse named Liz that comes and talks to you about how lucky you are to be able to survive and such. I don't think it's right now that you get to talk more to Liz, but um, I think that comes up. So Susan has, it's it's like a dream, but I have that in quotes and with question marks, uh, where the lamp that's by her bed moves forward and just burns her skin completely off. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when Liz wakes you up. Um, and this is where you get to talk more with Liz. So um, this is where you get some choices. You can not talk to Liz at all, um, which, you know, is not the best option considering what comes ahead. You do learn that uh, Liz reveals to you that your daughter was the one who found you um, and called the police. But the only problem is you don't have one of those. You don't have a daughter. Oh, one of those, eh? I like I like that. You don't have one of those daughter things. Uh, she also warns you about Dr. X. She says you can't go home until you talk to him, but he can really get into your head. She says things like I think she says that he smells bad badly at this point or no, yeah. not smells badly because that would imply that his nose doesn't work. He 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 gives off an unpleasant odor. Maybe that's a better way of saying that. I think that. that's it. I think that's it. Um, and just that he can really get into your head. And she says, don't trust anyone. And you can say, well, what about you? And she's like, well, you can't really be too sure about me either. So at this point, I was like, oh, it's Liz. You know, Same. Liz, Liz Same. Might, like, like clearly somebody named Dr. X is going to be somebody that we're going to be dealing with, you know. But at this point, I was like, maybe it's Liz that is, you know, one of our parasites with dr x yeah i was i i really thought that's what was coming so we see susan again in the consultation room with dr x and they're talking um well you tell him that you're ready to talk and you talk about your childhood with him this time and there are some visuals that kind of come alongside of it and then eventually we find susan back in her room after another at-length conversation. Was there anything particularly of note from that childhood conversation, Rick? I'm having a hard time remembering. I played the game so quickly. I think it's just neat that you have a lot of choices here to build up um, how your childhood was shaped and what happened. They ultimately don't matter. It's just you choosing your own um, past. So, like, in my past on here, I think I put, like, my dad had left me and my mom was an alcoholic. Um, But you can also choose... Um, you know, both of them were um, equally bad or like both of them were good. It's just world building. That's right. I picked that they were both good. 
because I wanted to see what you going to do, Dr. X, what you got on me. I was trying to challenge Dr. X, which, as we know, it's the funnel. It doesn't really matter at the end of it. So at this point, we're back in our room, and the Holy Spirit moves Susan to want to leave. I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or what it is, but Susan wants to get GTFO, as the youths say, um, of this hospital. And the hospital's Christian name, by the way, is the Cedar Lake Hospital. So I would, if you ever have a choice in what hospital you end up in, I would stay away from Cedar Lake. This is an anti-Cedar Lake Hospital podcast. Anyhow, um, we examine Susan's wristband at this point in the inventory, see name, birth, hospital, number, all those kinds of things. Um, we see that there are gloves that we can interact with in the room. Uh, you can interact with the sink. There's all kinds of things that are uh, in, in her specific room, you know, like a hospital. If we leave her room, we can see that there's a restroom far down the way to the right, um, but there is somebody inside. Somebody is using the toilet. Um, but we can walk back left in front of the room, see Susan's chart, like what drug she's taking, as well as the room next to hers, because it's you and you have a neighbor. Um, and it uh, it does comment that the medications can cause hallucinations and other sorts of things. And there are flowers. She hates the flowers. Um, I don't know. What were your thoughts on all this, Rick? Well, this was another part where I thought the hallucinations with the meds were going to play a way bigger role. I mean, yes. they play a they they play a bit of a role because you do have to take them to progress the story. But I thought they were going to be more than just a means to getting a particular item. Yeah, I I agree. And, and to be honest, we're gonna we're gonna get to a part here that I messed up many times. But I I took way more drugs than I meant to. Um. And that's, uh, I'm talking about the game, not in real life. Um, but we can continue walking to the uh, left to the desk. And there's a nurse we can speak with there. Ask if Liz is there. And she's like, I, I don't know. There are a lot of people who come in and out of here. And you're like, maybe Liz isn't real. I like that kind of aspect. It messed with you a little bit there. But to the left of the reception, though, you can try to get out via the security guards. Um, they're happy to let you out. You just need to have a discharge letter. Um, you can find one on the desk, but it's for Ann Burton, and she's standing, um, not standing, she is staying next to you in the ward. Um, you can't take that letter in plain sight, or the receptionist gets very angry at you. So it's at this point that I started messing up a lot of things, Rick, because, um, again, Ann, Ann Burton can get out, and I, uh, I could not. So you can go to the bathroom now, because... Is it Anna or Ann Burton? I can't remember for the life of me. Is it just Ann? I think it's just Ann. I thought it was. Um, she's out of the bathroom now, and she's, uh, you know, you're, you've told her that you're a friend of her mother's, and uh, which it's, it's, <laughs> it felt a little bit forced, I guessed. Um, and you're trying to get her to switch name tags with you um, so that you can be Ann Burton and that you can discharge yourself from the hospital, but it, it ends up being a mess. And this is where, um, this is how we actually end up learning how to get our way out. And it gets kind of, I know we've said lynching about eight times, but like it gets kind of strange here at this point when we enter the toilet. Yeah. Did you say that she was staying um, next to you voluntarily? Did you say oh, that? I, I forgot it was voluntarily, but she is your neighbor. Yes. And, and she is there voluntarily. That's important. 
Yeah, and she she acts really aloof and cagey. Um, and she won't, like you said, Ben, she won't talk to you unless you can tell her what her mother's name is. And you're presented with a list of names. You can just guess over and over again, which I thought would be the right thing to do if I couldn't figure it out. But none Same. of them are right. What you need to do is you need to get that wristband and get that discharge letter. So in the toilet, you there are a couple things you need to do in the toilet. So the first thing which is the quickest thing, is to get the discharge letter. So there is a buzzer to call a receptionist in. And like Ben, you had mentioned earlier that you could interact with some gloves in your room. You could take one rubber glove, um, and that doesn't really do anything. It's You just keep the rubber glove. You can also take a bunch of rubber gloves. And what you can do is stuff them all into the toilet and flush it, causing like a big overflow. And you call in the receptionist via the buzzer to fix it. I don't know why it's the receptionist that would have to fix that, but either way, she does, um, and it (laughs) takes her quite a while. Um, But it gives you enough time to go and get the discharge letter. And Mm -hmm. you can show it to the guards, and they're like, all right, yep, that's totally cool. Just show us your name name band, and then we can let you go. And you're like, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's in my room. I forgot it. Silly me. And the, the the whole time the guards are just like, oh, yeah, no problem. Just go get it. <laughs> Not <laughs> suspicious like at all. They've checked out. They're like, yeah, we're just doing our job to the letter on the page and nothing more. <laughs> Which, yeah. whatever, that's fine. Um, but now we need to get Anne's name banned. We do. And she has this medication that she wants. It's it's the It's the good stuff, as it were. So, Rick, I'm not going to lie. I called that receptionist to the restroom. It's understaffed. I believe that's why she had to come to the bathroom to help you. Um, I messed this up a lot, and I just kept calling her to the bathroom, and she kept giving me my medication with the uh, security guard, and I had to keep laying down and doing everything over again. So I I messed this up a lot. Well, this is really not intuitive. Um, No. So when you take the drugs, you're taken to this weird dream world, and whenever you're in the dream world— You see two sets of letters. You see SH, and then on the left side of the mirror, and on the right side of the mirror, you see A, um, which by themselves don't mean a whole lot. But before you get to the dream world, if you turn on the hot water, you cause steam to, you know, steam up the mirror. Jeez, I don't don't know why I'm having such a hard time with vocabulary today. You you steam up the mirror with the hot water tap, and the the letters form there, E-I-L which, again, by themselves don't mean anything. But when you're in the dream world, you'll see the full name Sheila. Um, Why this is how you find the mother's name out, I have no idea. But this is how you do it. And now when you know know Anne's mom's real name, and by the way, uh, we should say the hallucinations do make the hospital look super apocalyptic. Yes. It's really, really good. It's really cool. Um, but now she'll, this is where she tells you about the red stuff that takes the pain away. Once you tell her about her mom's name being Sheila, very, I've very overly trusting person to just be like, Oh, you know, my mom. Okay. I'll tell you whatever you want. After six incorrect guesses on both of our parts. (laughs) Seriously. It's like, well, the seventh time's the charm. I guess, you know, my mom, how else could you have thought of the name Sheila? It's so unique. It's a beautiful name. Her accent drove me nuts. It's not one of the best voice acting performances. She she tells you about the red stuff that takes the pain away. It's this amazing drug, and she says this is why she bees good. 
because otherwise the doctors don't give her it. And like, if she's really good, they give her the red stuff. Um, and if you try to talk to her about anything else, um, she'll dodge your questions with like just all this random, like really paranoid nonsense about everybody dying. And it always comes back to the red stuff. Um, and the hint that the game gives you is that she wants the real red stuff. Um, and she says it's only found in dreams. So this is your drug stupor. So you have to go back into the dream world again via your drugs, um, which the nurse is just happy to continually give you for as long as you want. Yeah, even though you don't, quote, need them, whatever. And if you go to the left, like past your room in the drug drugged out world, you see this giant heart on a spider web in the lobby. Um, again, this is this is just imagery that looks cool and uh, disturbing for the sake of looking cool and disturbing, which is fine. Um, I didn't hate this. But to get the red stuff, you have to make that heart bleed. Um, in the bathroom, something that I think we glossed over, you can take a glass shard from the mirror, which is broken, and you can also take a paper cup from the trash. Yes, which, yes. You know, sanitary, whatever. Um, and you stab the red heart and fill it up with... Uh, the red stuff that gushes out and then you go to sleep and once you're back in reality you have this stuff um so this is again this is like the hardest i think it's blurred the lines of reality wherein you go into this uh dream world and come out with something you know like something you would see in the nightmare uh nightmare on elm street or something i i really thought this was going to be a bigger deal like this interactivity between the two worlds, yeah. But ultimately, it, it's it's not. It's 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 really not. It kind of gave me a new appreciation for games that play with quantum physics, like Undertale on a level, as well as um, Bioshock Infinite, even because like they use the parallel worlds in ways that I'm like, okay, this is this is fine. But like this one, I was like, yeah, we're gonna have another parallel universe thing, and then it was just like, nope. I. I don't know how you're putting Undertale into that. Uh, well, because Sans is a time traveler, quantum leaper. I, I guess. He they sees feel all like times. Two, they feel like two distinct things to me, though. Like this versus Undertale or this versus um, Bioshock. Infinite. Oh, they are. Oh, they absolutely are. I'm just talking about parallels of worlds. I like whenever things go uh, parallel to each other because um, that's just it. Sans sees all of that kind of stuff and recognizes... Um, but that's a whole other can of worms. I wish they would have done more with what, what we're talking about when we liked so much from this game. But, oh, totally. But Anne does swap bands with us, but that doesn't, you know, the, the receptionist still knows and, you know, is still standing by. So we go back to the toilet, open the lid, stuff the gloves in there, you know, as one does, uh, floods the toilet. And the receptionist's like, well, we're short-staffed, so I've got to clean this up. And you run for it. Um, while she is unblocking the toilet, you grab yourself a discharge note. And then you uh, walk past the security guards who are like, oh, yes, okay. You're, there's nothing suspicious here about you with a different name than you had earlier today. Yeah, I, you know, it is what it is. Yep, and they let you right through. Um, but you are caught by Professor X. And soon after, you are caught via the other end. Uh, the receptionist and security. So the doctor says, you know, whoopsie, whoopsie, we've been giving you the completely wrong meds, <laughs> which is like, can't be doing that. Um, That's a lawsuit. 
Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, I don't think he's concerned about that because, um, you know, he tells you you're free to go. We just got to give you a full evaluation in the morning, you know, and then you're free to leave. Um, so it cuts back to another therapy session. And he's asking, you know, general psyche eval questions. You know, are you happy? What makes you happy? Are you sad? Would you say that you're depressed? Things like this. And then he asks you what happened last night, because apparently there was a ruckus. And you recount this via a flashback, which starts like in a picture-in-picture style that I was a really big fan of. I liked it, yeah. Um, So Liz wakes you up in the middle of the night, and she's like, look, it is not safe here. We've got to get out of here. So she takes you through the hospital. You're looking for ways out. Eventually, she takes you up to the roof, and... She climbs onto the edge and, you know, she tells you this is the only way out. This is how we're going to get out of here. We're going to do this together. And, of course, you say, no, like, this is a bad idea. And Liz, you know, starts to question your level of friendship and camaraderie to her. And she basically, from the very first time you met her, she told you three bits of information about herself that seemed like they were passing and not worth very much. But she says, oh, if you're my real friend, then you would remember this thing and you have to pick between three things i got them all right i don't know about you rick i got all of them right and same response same thing yeah so these are all stuff that you learn these are all things that you learn from liz if you choose to talk with her um and if you get them all right like you said um, she does end up jumping anyway this is a prerequisite to get the quote unquote golden ending um which you know i i think that term is really misused in general but especially in this game because the golden ending to me is the worst ending it it undoes a lot of the impact did you take a look into the endings at all i actually didn't know okay we'll we'll talk about that when we get to the ending but this is like the first big prerequisite you need to get liz's questions right so she jumps and professor x back in real time he says, you know, Liz wouldn't ever do that, and, you know, she's okay. Like, she, she's here right now. This doesn't sound like Liz. Like, let's, let's go see her. But you stand up, and the door is locked. So you turn around, and Professor X is approaching you. You know, he was always going to be a bad guy with the name Professor X. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you're not in a wheelchair helping out um, teenage mutants, and your name is Professor X, you are a bad guy. So he says he's always prepared. He always prepares ahead. And he listens to his gut um, and that your sadness has poisoned you for too long. And if it weren't for Liz, he wouldn't have to do this. And he stabs you to death. So with the exception of the opening suicide, um, this is the first time we get woken up into this limbo between life and death. This sets up the pattern that every time we die, we're going into limbo and we have to get our way out. And this leads us to the truth and lies section. Correct. That's when we wake up in the theater. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This, this, I liked this part too. Again, there was a lot of inconsistencies, but there were some moments that were really cool. And so we're in this old looking theater. Um, and you can go to the left and there's this cord that you have to pull and you listen to this, this crow caw. Um, and then you walk further to the right. And this is Rick. We talked about this earlier. Um, there are these two really, really rough looking dolls, um, kind of different, um, they look like photographs of these dismorphed dolls versus you, who is, you know, a 2D character. They, they, look, they looked kind of like shark-like in their appearance to me. With their mouths being all 
as jagged toothed as they were. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, and and they're wearing red dresses. They're and when we say dolls, we mean dolls, but they are giant. They're like seven feet tall, um, and they move very jerky like. And this whole time, the crow um, is talking to you, and he says, "You know, we're going to help get you out. There are two doors here. Um, one will take you to a great reward." Quote, something you've been wanting every day. But now, in front of these two doors are the two dolls. And for some reason, they do the classic, one always tells the truth and the other always lies. But you can only ask one of them one question and then no more. And it's like, this has been done so often. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like this is something that I learned about in middle school. And like, everybody knows how to solve this puzzle, right? I don't think so. Help us out, Rick. Wait, really? Like, did I, you I, not? I really think I really think so. Oh, okay. So, like, when when you're presented with this kind of thing, like, one always tells the truth, one always lies. You can only ask one question. You ask one of the dolls. You you say which doll which door would the other doll point me to? So, if that doll is truthful, it'll tell you to go through door one. If that doll is lying, it'll say go through door two which would mean the other doll is truthful so we know to go through door one so it's a way that we can kind of reverse engineer this so we know exactly where to go just by asking this one question um so did you get did you pick the right door i picked the left door i didn't know if it was the right door or not because i read that and i was like i don't know what i'm doing here (laughs) what um what happened when you went through the door honest to god i don't know why i can't remember for the life of me i just the, the, the game kind of continued um that's you know, fair I, I i don't remember seeing a reward necessarily but i do remember blowing out candles so if you pick the correct door the reward quote unquote are flowers which i did Susan not hate that and she's not happy this is another prerequisite for the quote unquote golden ending um susan's mad about this because she hates flowers she really hates flowers but you pass through another door and you're back in the queen of maggots candle room where you blow out another candle um, and this one causes an old woman in the hospital to just pass away in the middle of the night. And that's what brings you back. But not quite yet, because the next screen we have to pass through, uh, we hear this squishing. And we find a body bag that's kind of moving. And when we open it, it's you. Um, so you're looking at yourself in this body bag. And this causes this kind of reaction where you wake up inside of a body bag in this room that Professor X stored you in. So this this scene was really cool to me because, like, suddenly, like, you are looking at yourself and then that causes you to wake up, but now you're the other you. Um, it's, it's this really, really bizarre, like, scary stories to tell in the dark kind of atmosphere where reality is twisted and now you're, you're back. You've woken up and you're pissed. You're real mad. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful transference into this this padded cell where we have this your suicide note is actually there. Um and there are other bodies in the room with you. One of them has an iron bar through them and you need that. Um so you, they're they're on the right side of the room by the way and we we take that iron bar and this is where we start to build things for the first time if I'm not mistaken. This is the beginning of that. Well, that that person that stabbed with the iron bar is Liz. Oh, was it Liz? I didn't pay enough attention. Yeah, that's Liz. And if you answered all of her questions right, there will be a key next to the exit door. Um, yes. Which is your reward. So you can just straight up leave. 
Yes. And you I didn't get that key. To... You didn't? No, I did get it because I got her question. Oh, you did get it. Yeah. So did you choose to leave? Um, I, I, to, to leave the room you're talking. To leave the whole thing. So once you get that exit key, you can leave the whole hospital. Oh. Oh, you know what? I, no, I didn't. I actually stayed. And that's, yeah. Because she, she has a moment where she thinks like, you know, I, I could get out of here right now, but that means that that doctor is going to be doing this to other women forever. Yeah, I did not leave. Yeah, neither did I. But I left the padded cell. Such a bizarre thing to reward you with. Like, here's your reward. You can leave and not take vengeful justice, which is like a theme of this game on this horrific man. It makes no sense to me. Anyways, outside, you're in this horrible murder dungeon. Um, You're constantly hearing screaming here. Um, and you're seeing all of these quote-unquote art pieces that are utilizing dead bodies. Um, Professor X has configured the corpses of his patients into famous paintings such as the Mona Lisa, uh, the girl with the pearl earring, and etc. And it's, it's all horrific and horrible. Um, but this is also, like you said, Ben, where we start to fashion our weapon. Yes, yes it is. There's... <sighs> And this was not intuitive to me at all, but there's a chair that you have to pick up or you can pick up and you can take the chair leg and that's going to be part of one of your weapons. Found that kind of confusing. Um, but I- exactly. Rick, you, did you use the term murder dungeon? Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's the best way to put it. Um, there's a, a room. Is it is it all the way to the right? And it's kind of in the dark. If I'm not mistaken, it was to the right. And there's... um. Whenever the light is on, it goes on and off, but whenever it's on, there's a saw blade, and we need to get that. Um, there's also soap, which, again, I, I, ke- I kept looking at these things, and I, I was... It's a little bit weird for me, Rick. Um, you can run it under water and kind of make wet soap, which apparently, you know, we need to... I don't... <laughs> I was just surprised by all of this. I don't quite remember what you do with the wet soap. You get the nut off of the woman's hand because it's a ring. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Um, I didn't do anything with the nut. Um, I think you can make multiple weapons here. Um, But the weapon that I know you and I both made has a wooden chair leg, a saw blade, and it's all affixed together with a baby doll head to keep it in place. Naturally. I, I think that's just awesome. I think that's so cool. I liked it. I actually made both weapons. I gathered everything I needed for both. What was the, what was the second one? It was just a spear. Oh, okay. And and you put them together with with the bolt, and and the wrench. The wrench is how you put that all together. So um, there are screams the entire time you're traversing this dungeon. Um, but what we do is is we with our weapon. You know, we walk to the end of the room, and there's Doctor X, and we see him, and he is like making this woman scream and and you can tell that he is going to going to harm her and it's you know it's this was an intensity i liked in the game you can kill him again with either the um the mace or the spear and you just kind of kind of whack him as it were um then there's a dialogue choice between you and the woman and at this point, one of the dialogue options they gave you, she said, who are you? And your choices were, my name is Susan Ashworth. Now get out of here. I'm nobody or I'm the cat lady. And for whatever reason, that made me like piss myself. Cause like, well, it's, it's like your superhero origin story. 
I guess I guess so. It just it struck me as funny because cats didn't feel that prevalent at the beginning. Like they could have done more with the cats early in the game. We should say too, just to not gloss over it, the doctor torturing this girl, the doctor is blindfolded and wearing a mask, so he can't see yes. you. Um, and he's going on and on about how the girl's screams are music to him and to uh, and art, and this is the most perfect form of art and blah, blah, blah. Um, and as you kill him, you are able to, like, deliver a one-liner. <laughs> you could say, like, you'll feel a little prick before you stab him. Uh, yeah. Or, what's up, doc? And beat him or you could choose you could choose to say nothing too but yeah that was a nice touch yeah i i kind of like and the, yeah i said nothing and i just killed him because i was like i can't say what's up doc to this guy oh like, i said what's up doc <laughs> of course of course i just i couldn't i was like rick's gonna pick what's up doc and rick did you pick i'm the cat lady no no i just said i'm susan ashworth same i'm glad that we both were you know just yeah, like none, none of that has none of that makes any difference no no, it doesn't, which is, you know, kind of a lot of a lot of this game. Make some decisions and some make a difference and other ones make absolutely none. But this leads us into our third chapter, which is called River. Yeah, so this opens with Susan contemplating jumping off of a bridge, um, but instead you go home, you're covered in blood, so you need to shower, and you've run out of electricity in the meter, which I guess is just a cultural thing. That's not something we have in America. Um, so there's a meter outside that you just need to go and you know put coins into, and that refills your electricity, so you need to go and do that. Um, this whole area introduces two mechanics that again are only in this chapter which are susan's mental meters her stress and her happiness um the stress fills up if you fuck stuff up the happiness fills up if you do stuff right and what's cool here is they're they're codependent or um excuse me they're not codependent on each other meaning if your happiness rises your stress doesn't go down which when i saw that i was like that's awesome we're finally getting back into like these mental health aspects but no um, not at all it, it doesn't no. do anything with that. Um, but this whole chapter, um, you're doing a lot of basic stuff. So your next order of business is uh, some coffee, a smoke, and some food. That's pretty much every day for me starts that way. What, what I liked about this, though, and again, this is what I thought. I, I thought this was going to do more with mental health is every single step or let, let me rephrase that. It makes you go through every single step and it makes me think of like, you know, things like Depression Quest, the game, and then like actual depression when you're when you're doing tasks, everything is a step. You know, you have to go, you have to open the fridge, you have to grab the food, you have to look at the wrapper, you have to actually take it out of the wrapper, wrapper then you have to find a plate, but then you actually have to put it on the plate and put it, like everything is is something here. Yeah, and that got a little bit tedious for me. I see. I liked it because that's like it's true to life. That's like that's how depression is. No, that's okay. Okay, from that standpoint, yes. But like for me, like making the coffee, for example, that like frustrated me a little bit because I was like, I have to start all over again. And I was like, 
don't want to start oh, you, over. You, you fucked up the coffee? Yes. So you can fuck up the coffee and the food. <laughs> um, I fucked up the food because you have a microwave, um, and I guess and maybe this is another cultural thing, um, the wattage really matters. So, like, I put yeah. in the hamburger the cheeseburger from the fridge for like 90 seconds because i was like i'm heating up a cheeseburger like it'll be fine and it exploded the entire microwave Same. um and, and i did a minute so i couldn't yeah so i couldn't eat that the coffee um you know you have to find the coffee grounds put them in the thing and then get a coffee cup you can choose to either use milk from the fridge or this weird stuff in the pantry called like coffee whitener yes um which I chose the coffee whitener, and that's what you're supposed to do. And it makes "quote unquote" white coffee, which sounds disgusting to me. Agreed. Yeah, that sounds like half cream, half coffee. Sounds gross. But Ben, you you did the other one. You did the milk from the fridge. I did the milk, and it had turned. And she's like, "Ugh, I've ruined my coffee. I guess I'll have to start again." And I was like, "Please don't have to boil the water." That's where it like frustrated me, and I didn't yet learn that you could skip over dialogue yet so i was having to like listen to every single solitary like oh oh no i was like oh kill me um so so yes i mean again that that whole thing it it makes sense to me because like you know a person with depression they're not going to you know they're just going to grab the milk in the fridge and then just pour it in you know they're not going to why would you think to to smell that you know oh yeah and I agree. I like that standpoint. And I, I like that aspect. I guess for me, it was just like, guess I'll have to start all over again. And I was like, if I was feeling bad enough, I probably just would give up on coffee in general, to be honest. But so I recognized what they were doing. But it was just also like, I don't. Again, I said earlier, make sure you have a lot of time on your hands to play this game. This is the stuff I'm talking about. And it's not. This is not me, like, condemning anything that has to do with depression or anything like that. I'm just saying this game makes you do things very, very true to form and to to how things can actually be for someone. What's not true to form is this next part, because now you're able to actually go outside and enjoy your coffee with a cigarette, but the crow is there, so you have to make a scarecrow um, out of a laundry rod, um, a shirt, a volleyball and a hat, all of which you find inside, which was just infinitely frustrating to me because I found all of that stuff, but I still didn't think to make a scarecrow because you have to select the stuff next to the laundry rod and then choose to use it. Because what I wanted to do was just chuck the volleyball at the crow because I was sure. like, yeah, that'll that'll scare a crow away, <laughs> you know, like that crow's not going to come back. You throw a volleyball at it. Are you kidding me? But no, you have to make a scarecrow. Um, and that took me entirely too long, and it was really frustrating. Um, one other note just before we move on um, is throughout all of this, we are learning of Susan's past. There was somebody named Eric in her life who plays a bigger role in the coming chapters. Yes, we learn more about Eric um, later on. Yeah, it's... After this, we have like another scene by the river, and she's talking to herself, standing by the river. I close my eyes, one jump, and I'm there. No, someone jumped after me. He will never be my friend. Um, we're back at the flat, though, and we can go to play the piano, which summons the cats, of course. Um, we take a tin of cat food to the bowls, because I was really confused when I saw bowls at the end of the balcony. 
um, we take those, uh, we take the cat food to the bowls, and after playing the piano, the cats come and they eat. Um, when you exit the balcony, you sit down and talk to Teacup, but you hear a knocking at the door. And this this kind of disrupted me just a little bit, and then it, it didn't build enough. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, Teacup is your favorite of the cats. Um, but somebody is knocking at your door. It's this guy named Brian. Um, Brian is a real jackass. He's mad that you're playing piano so late. Um, it is late, but I think in total you played piano for like 30 seconds before the cat showed up. So it's really not a big deal. And he's he's really berating you. He's saying that he's going to call pest control to come and kill your cats. Like, it, it's pretty bad. Um, you can stand up to him or you can be kind to him. I think you have to be kind to him to get the golden ending. I did not. I told him to go fuck himself because he was a jerk. I tried to be nice, but, I mean, I don't remember exactly what I chose, but... But at this point, my stress meter bro- um, went too high, so uh, Susan went inside, and she kind of has a breakdown. Um, she breaks a mirror and then just cries on her bed. And that's the ending of this chapter. After the breakdown, it's another scene by the river where she says, Will I jump again? No. Behind the closed doors, I have fallen in love with the razor. So she won't kill herself that way, which, again, I like this side, this sort of theming. Um, but that's, this is where we reach chapter four, known as A Bullet for Susan. Yeah, this opens with somebody knocking on your door again, um, but this time it's a young woman, and you learn that this is the girl that saved you. Her name is Mitzi Hunt. Uh, she learned of your address because of an ad you put in the paper a long time ago for a spare room. You forgot all about it. Uh, she heard the cats screaming and wailing inside, um, which she said almost turned into a human cry. So naturally, she picked the lock to get in to see what was going on. Um, and she says she told the ambulance driver that she was your daughter just to avoid questioning. And so she could come to the hospital with you, which makes sense. Like, I could see somebody doing that for real. Every single possible reason that you have as to why Mitzi shouldn't rent the room, she has a comeback. Um, she says, you know, if it's gross, I'll clean it. If it smells, she'll light uh, incense sticks. Um, and eventually you just relent and say, okay. And you do some more talking with her. You you ask if she's emo, um, and she does like a whole, I only listen to real rock and roll. Um, and she tells you never to ask her that again, which I it was at that moment where I was like, oh, yeah, this was made in 2012, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. So Mitzi's whole reason for being here, she says she's looking for somebody and, quote, track them down via the Internet, which is a very early 2010s thing to say. Um, They live in this room or not in this room, in this building. They live in this building. So you walk into the living room and as Susan, you see the Queen of Maggots appears over Mitzi's shoulder, whispers something in her ear or kisses her cheek. It's not Mm -hmm. really clear what she does. I think it's a smooch. I, I think it might be kissing the cheek, too. And you freak out and you tell her, like, you're not safe here. You need to get out of here. Like, I knew this was going to happen. You need to leave. You're going to die. Well, yeah, yeah. You you tell her she's going to die. And Mitzi takes this rather well. She says, I know. Um, and this is when she reveals that she's wearing a wig, which is, you know, just the sort of symbol for having cancer. Um, and she says, you know, I've got six months left. But how did you know that? Yeah, and she just said, I, didn't Susan just say that she like had a sense, like she just she just kind of knew and she couldn't explain it? She definitely doesn't say, oh, yes, this uh, 
queen of the maggots. She didn't say that. No, no, you don't. You don't tell her about your hallucinations <laughs> or whatever they might be. Um, yeah, I think you just say you had a sense or something. Yeah. But this is where we get a scene change into the pest control man's bloody shed. Yeah, this. I don't want to say that like I liked this, but like this, this was another one of those moments where I was like, "Oh, hey, this is kind of fascinating." Like this is, I'm I'm riveted. This was good. The performance is is good. He's like giving off really creepy uh, predator vibes, like all the way down to off color jokes about pussy, like relating it to cats and stuff. Yeah. So Susan is bound in the shed with this pest control man who's saying all of these really dirty bad things um and you're blindfolded no you're not blindfolded you're just laying on your back at this point but his his i guess wife i don't know other half of his relationship she shows up and she is very accusatory of him and this jealous woman after the man leaves the room she takes bleach and dumps it on susan's face which i that the empathy within me really burned at this moment yeah, that's literally going to melt her eyes. One one thing before you keep going, Ben, sure. is um, the man says that you're only here for dinner. Like, she's only here for dinner, and the wife says, good, she's starving and she's tired of cats. So we learn that these are cannibals. That's true, yeah. They, they eat cats, they eat humans, they eat, to be honest, they probably eat just about anything. But speaking of cats, though, after you pour the bleach into, or after the bleach gets poured into your face, we get to a very unexpected part of the game. You now are playing as the cat known as Teacup. Yeah, cat platformer. Yeah, it was it was what it was. Um, so we have to nudge ourselves um, off of this ledge because we're in a cage because, of course, we were caught by the pest control. And after we get the cage to collapse and, and fall and break... We, we walk to the left until we meet with Susan. Um, we see her there. There's a hole that's above the shelf that we have to jump into, and, and we're going through what looks like an air duct of sorts. At least that's what I kind of took it as. While, while the cat is traversing these, these ducts, the man comes back, and he says that he has a gun with him and that there's one bullet in, there's one bullet in, in, the, in the gun for, for her should she decide that she doesn't uh, want to live and that he's basically saying this is not a way to live, um, which I thought was just really interesting. I love this part. He he says that he doesn't want you to think that he's not a kind man, so he like pulls out the gun as, like you said, Ben, another option for you, but he puts it just out of reach on a table, and he says, like, what's the matter? Can't reach it? And then he says, yeah, well, what are you going to do? Life's a real fucker sometimes. And then he just leaves. Which I that I love that line. It was it was a good line. It was well done. This whole this whole exchange was really interesting, though. The idea of having to off yourself is not one that is um, particularly comfortable to me. I, I thought that was an interesting moment in the game. Well, he doesn't know that Susan can't die. So to Susan, she's like, "Yeah, let let me let me do this so I can come back without my eyes melted." But you don't do that just yet because you're back as teacup again. Uh, you find the key to Susan, Susan's handcuffs and swallow it, but this is when the man comes back in. So you have to sneak past him, um, which is pretty easy. It's it's really not a thing. So you jump down and you spit the key out to Susan, um, and now you get to play as her, but the screen is entirely black because you know her eyes are melted by bleach. 
um, you freak out because you don't know who's there, but you, you do feel the key. So you unlock yourself. Um, you're walking again in complete darkness because you don't have eyes uh, to find the gun. And when you do pick it up, you drop it, but you find it again. And before shooting yourself, you say, I'm sorry, Mitzi, I have to break my promise. And then bang. This next part is really cool. The flashback, well, it's not a flashback, really. Um, it opens with the text, you are dead. But when it pulls back, it's just a poster of Mitzi's because you're back at the flat with her. Um, and it's just one of, you know, one of Mitzi's uh, music slash art posters that she's really into. Wasn't it from her boyfriend? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. And that, that becomes a thing pretty soon, too. Yeah, yeah. So we're back at the flat. We find ourselves in the spare bedroom where Mitzi is staying. We see the poster. Mitzi wants to have wine with you, and you can either challenge this and say you shouldn't have any because you're a cancer patient, or you can say, sure, why the hell not? Um, but even so, you need to find uh, corkscrew, wine glasses, etc., because you have to gather like everything in this game. You get you get the corkscrew from the kitchen. You get the wine glasses from the cabinet, um, and you give everything to Mitzi, and that's whenever you kind of shift to the balcony where you learn about the eye of adam um, a chemical combination and her illness you learn about all three of these items you you also just get to interact with the two of them i really like their relationship it, it seems pretty believable to me no it, it feels very organic and and even though the microphone quality is different between the two of them they f- that you get a sense of actual relationship between the two and i and i, I did like that um, as you said, Ben, you, you learn more about Mitzi's cancer. This is where she reveals she has six months to live. It's an awkward conversation, as it would be for real. Um, Mitzi says that her cancer's name is, um, oh, I can't pronounce this, glioblastoma. Is that how you pronounce it? I forget what specific it is. Is it geoblastoma? But she, she says each, each of them a goddess of death, beautiful and ruthless. Um, and she says that all cancer names and all deadly illnesses have women's names you also learn of her boyfriend jack um jack is dead um once he learned about mitzi's cancer he really didn't take it well like death was all he could think about and he found a suicide forum on the internet jack did and a member the one named eye of adam uh, who is who ben was referring to uh found him and even though this was a support forum, the Eye of Adam kind of persuades people to follow through on on killing themselves to relieve them of life. Um, and he does it in a way so that, you know, nobody else will die with them. Um, he gave Jack the plan to sort of die in Mitzi's arms. Um, Jack is really gung-ho about this, like a Romeo and Juliet kind of situation. Uh, but Mitzi, of course, does not want to do this. So they fight about it a ton. Um, Jack leaves and says, you know, meet me in our special place in the morning at five. But, you know, because Mitzi was up all night fighting and crying, she accidentally falls asleep, um, wakes up late. And by the time she gets to that place, Jack is already in the car, in a car, I should say, um, with poisonous gas just completely filling it. And there are plenty of signs on the doors that say, you know, poisonous gas, flammable gas, do not open. Because that's the eye of Adam's whole thing, is he wants people to kill themselves if they want to, but he doesn't want other people to die with them. Yeah, no, that's that's a great recounting of what happens there. You, as Susan, are pestering her so that you can learn the combination of chemicals that makes this gas, but Mitzi is very hesitant because she doesn't want you to do it to yourself. But eventually she does tell you. 
um, which it does come in handy shortly because we kind of go back to the pest controller's house and we're alive again, which is shocking. I said it was a flashback earlier and then I said it wasn't. I was wrong. This, this was a flashback. That's my bad. But yeah, after you promise Mitzi that you won't try this method to kill yourself, she tells you. And you kind of have uh, flashbacks to this when you find the bleach in the house. You have a flashback. Cats are outside screaming and howling. Mitzi doesn't want to go outside because she's scared of fog. And when you go outside, that's when you bump into the pest control man. Says that a kind man called and complained about a cat problem um, and that you were making it worse. So he kidnaps you. So Brian inadvertently basically got you killed. Yes. God damn it, Brian. I say that daily. Sorry, continue. (laughs) But this is when we're back um, in the house, like we said. The man is sleeping in his room in the cellar, and his wife is chopping up what appears to be human meat outside in the shed. So you find a phone in the library um, after screwing in the two light bulbs um, that you have to find and screw in. Uh, You can't remember your phone number, but luckily it's written down in the phone book by the dude, uh, by the guy, because when Brian called, that's what he did. So you call Mitzi, you fill her in, she tells you the other chemical that you need, pesticide. Um, At this point, you can also choose to call the police, which, did you do that, Ben? Uh, Yeah, and it was a waste of time. It's a huge waste of time, because they run your name, and they see that you recently were discharged from a mental uh, facility, so they don't believe you. They're just like, well, we can readmit you. Um, They don't take this seriously at all. So you're kind of fucked in that regard. But at this point, we need to get the pesticide, which is in the shed where the wife is chopping up the human remains. Uh, Throughout here, you can also get caught by the wife, it should be noted. Um, She kind of comes out randomly, but if she catches you, she just chops you up and then you wake up back in the cellar again. It doesn't seem like she's phased by finding you multiple times and chopping you up. She, She doesn't care. No, no, she does not care. Um, But we do use the phone number. We call the house from another phone, from a cell phone, right? We get our hands on a cell phone. And we we call the house, and that gets her away from the shed, and that's how we end up going to get the pesticide. Uh, Going back into the house, we, we have a... We find a gas mask. Where is the gas mask again, Richard? I don't remember exactly where you find the gas mask. I think it's in the back of the man's truck. That's where it is. That's exactly where it is. And we we cover the window from the outside with a painting that we found in the house. We get the gas mask. We go to the basement. We find a bucket, and we put the necessary chemicals into the bucket, and that's what fumes him to death, basically. And so there's at least one down at this point. Once you do that, you're still wearing the gas mask. You can take his shotgun. And then you have to go and kill the woman. Um, when you go to the shed, she's gone. But outside of the shed, we neglected to mention our bathtubs full of this corroding acid or dissolving acid, which is awesome. Like it, it's played for a good atmospheric effect and a good scare earlier. Um, really good. But she's just hiding in there. So like I'm even more confused at this point what kind of monster she actually is to be able to hide in that corrosive acid without dying. But it doesn't matter, because when she jumps at you, you blow her head off with a shotgun. And the whole moment is ruined by licensed, angsty indie guitar music as you walk out. Yes, which was missing from the end of Chapter 3, so it kind of feels inconsistent and no through line. Yeah, it's just like, this was a cool moment 
why? Uh, I don't know. The music just does not work for me in this game at all. No, no. But after she's killed, that takes us into our fifth chapter in the game, which is known as Some Flowers Never Bend Towards the Sun. Yeah, this begins, uh, Mitzi's happy you're back. You go to take a bath, and she barges in and asks you what kind of pancakes you like. And you <laughs> like say, I'll have, I'll have one of each. And she says, you'll have two of each. So, there's that. You also get to see boobies. You do, it's true. Yeah, it's not really a focus, so that's, that's cool. Yeah. Mitzi teaches Susan about different kinds of music and social media here. It's just kind of getting to know more about them. And then she says she's stuck finding her person. And this is where you get a map of the flats and you work out who is where. Um, which we'll probably just talk about in chapter six since that's what that's all about. Mm-hmm. So Susan at this point talks about, you know, not having kids in her past relationship. But she gets tense and she cuts the conversation off completely. Um, she says, isn't 10 years of suffering enough even for me? Um, as somebody that has killed herself. So that's pretty powerful. You walk away and Mitzi accidentally breaks a mug, um, but at the same time there's knocking at the door. You open the door and flowers are pushed in, but it's quickly revealed this dude has a hammer. Um, So we've already dealt with three of the parasites, Professor X and then the two cannibals. This is the fourth parasite, and he isn't really all that fleshed out. There is a theory that this is the same person that Susan talks to in a flashback that we get to pretty soon. But it's never confirmed nor denied by the developer. He wanted The developer wanted to intentionally leave it blank. Um, because of how that phone call could go with your um, quote-unquote stalker, I don't think this is him. But at any rate, the guy has a hammer. He's pushing inside, and he, you know, kills Susan. No. We find ourselves now on this pier that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of strange, and you're playing as Susan. So at this point in the game, I think we've only played as Susan and Teacup because there's a grand total of three people you play as in the whole game. You go to the left to go to the living room. This is where it starts to get kind of psychedelic and strange, in my opinion. There's more locked doors. We walk across. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's right. Before the pier. My fault. We go left to enter the living room. There's a door and it's locked, but as we walk back and forth, there's a, uh, a wall of skulls blocking the way. A- and the whole room is basically turned to skulls, and it's, it's uh, a little bit weird. But we have to... There's a whole thing using... Is it mirror shards again, or is it the knife? That we have to, we have to wedge, basically, the skulls, break the actual wall down. And we, we find that mace... It's it's a it's a yeah, mace we that we find the, the weapons that we used before. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, cuz it's 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 a it's this was again kind of like some sort of strange dream sequence to me. I wish that there could have just been a little bit more cohesion between death scenes and like resurrection scenes. Um but we do get our mace back 
and we use it to uh, knock down uh, the walls. Um, but we find ourselves back in that room with the candles, and we have to blow out one of those and witness uh, a, quote, accident. Yes, uh, when you blow out that candle, um, you see somebody dying in a car crash. Now you're back in a mon- in the monster room. So I don't know if we talked about this. There's In one of the rooms, there is this spider-like monster that uh, Susan remarks looks strangely like her. Yeah. Your reflection... Um, so that monster is in a mirror, um, as is your reflection, but in your field, it's just you. Um, if you have the knife, you can stab as yourself, but then your reflection also stabs. So you have to get in front of the monster. You can't do this from behind. Get in front of the monster, stab into the air, which causes your reflection to stab the monster causing the monster to die, and then the medicated hospital version of yourself will follow you around. Um, There's an elevator all the way to the right of the pier, and this elevator gives you the hint that there's a minimum occupancy of two people. So if you go over there, um, your hospital version of you will stay there until you're ready to use it. And you walk with this hospital version of yourself to the end of the pier, to this elevator, which you can finally activate because there are two people, so it's you and your shadow self. Um, and it goes down, and it it seems like... I, I, what was your interpretation of this? Because I, I kind of saw it as like the pressure of the ocean breaking it. Like, what was going on? That's what I thought, too. The deeper you go, you, you'll see some floating corpses, but um, it seemed to, to me to be the just the ocean pressure, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, is it confirmed that Susan dies in this? Is that what it is? Well, yeah, the the guy that opened the door with the flowers killed Susan. No, I meant like died from the pressure it's in some way, shape, or form, because it kind of felt like she might have. Oh, well, since this is like the other world, I just assume this is how she quote-unquote wakes up, you know? Yeah. So, because she already blew out the, the candle for a soul for a soul, so. No, that's, yeah, that's fair. But we, we enter this this room... And there's this series of panels, and we've got our Shadow Susan along for the ride with us. And there's all of this machinery in this room, and at this point we have the mace. And what's the other long item that we have to use? It's just the switch itself. Is, is, this, the, is this the part where you navigate Shadow Susan with the saw blades? Yes. Isn't that... Oh, no, that is here. That is here. That's right. Yeah, because you, you go to the end of the room, and that's where the actual lever is. And we get that lever, and we bring it back to the front of the room, and we have to activate these um, this system of panels one at a time to get Susan, Shadow Susan, to move from the left side of the room to the right side of the room to the machine. Yeah, this is really tedious to me. It is very tedious, and I wasn't fond of this necessarily. Um, killing the spider monster was cool, but this this didn't do it for me. But it needs blood to turn on like that other machine, and so you kind of trap her at the fourth panel with the mace, and then you use the lever on the other one, and you activate the saw, and the blood activates the machine. I don't know. This this didn't do much for me. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, I, I believe this happens before you're able to use the elevator, though. Oh, that's right. That That's exactly right. I don't know why I got that out of order, but yeah. yeah. At any rate, though, um, once you do use the elevator and everything kind of crushes inward, you wake up and you and Mitzi are both bound by duct tape in the bathtub. And, you know, Mitzi is like, I I thought you died. And you say, no, I'm a tough old gal. 
and you do some bickering. And this is where Susan really opens up about her past because, you know, Mitzi thinks that they're going to die. So Susan is going to talk to try to comfort her. So back in the in the past, um, Susan had a quote unquote secret admirer. Somebody used to deliver flowers to Susan every Friday while Susan was home and her husband Eric was at work. And this is where we also learn that Susan had a daughter named Zoe, who was only six months old. Um, and at this point, we get to do like a little flashback. And there's a lot of glitching that happens in the background here. It's super cool. Um, Susan answers the phone. And, you know, this these conversations with this secret admirer can go a couple different ways. Like, you can choose to make it so, like, he's just a creep that's bothering her. But you can also go the route that they're having an affair like during one of the conversations, you can straight up say, like, if this if you keep calling, I'm never going to see you again. You know, it, it it's heavily implied that you can make it so that they're that Susan's having an affair, but you don't have to. But anyway, she keeps saying, like, I have a family. This will never work. And the word liar is like flashing in the background over and over again. Um, so Susan wants to hide the flowers um, from Eric so he doesn't see them and get suspicious. So she puts them in Zoe's room, the, the baby's room, right by the open window. Yeah, at this point, um, Eric is home. We hear the door slam, and we go out. We can confront Eric and, and kind of talk with him. And, and he's had a hell of a day where he nearly died because of a terrorist attack is, is what he's talking about. Which, to be honest, if we wanted to research this to the umpteenth degree and kind of pinpoint what year this could have been, because we can assume that they're in London, even though his accent was a little bit confusing too. But he wants a drink. At least that's the option that I went with with him. So we got the wine glasses. The phone rings again. And uh, it's it's this guy again. And you keep trying to say, like, oh, like, I don't know what you did, Rick. But I just kept saying, oh, no, I don't want any. Thanks so much. Like I, I forget if it was an insurance guy that I told Eric that it was. But I just, I ultimately said, uh, you know, I I got to hang up. I didn't. I don't think Eric got a hold of the phone. If that if that's even a possibility, and that's just it. I only play this once, so I don't know all of the possibilities of things. Um, but I did get off the phone with the admirer. Yeah, I don't know if Eric could take the phone. I don't think he does. Um, this is just where you can kind of give world building as to, you know, whether this guy is a creep or whether they have an actual relationship. This this is where Eric and Susan have their big blowout fight. Some people really love this. Some people really hate this. I, I thought the fight was well observed. It very much sounded like a real argument that I've heard people have, maybe with a bit of an exaggeration here or there. Eric, so Eric is berating Susan over the state of the house, not having dinner ready, um, and he's pissed that he's pay- she's paying attention to the baby over him. Um, and it goes on, like, you know, they haven't had sex in how long, they don't have any time together, Um and that I mean, and that's real. That's real things that couples deal with whenever they have a baby for the first time. Um, I I don't think the performance voice acting wise here was very good. I, I think Eric's voice actor is not very good at all. Same. And you know Susan's is fine. So in that respect, this kind of fell flat for me. But in terms of an argument, it seems believable. No, it was it was a pretty real. A seemingly organic argument to be having. The, the voice acting on his part was lackluster. So at the conclusion of the story, we're back in the bathroom and the intruder returns. It's it's revealed. Did we reveal um, how the child, what actually happened to the child? 
No. So, um, so what happened? Oh, yeah. Take it away. Take it away. Um, and then I'll volley it to you. But what happens is, is that it turns out that the flowers, and this is at the end of the story, what happens is the flowers that you'd put into the child's bedroom, the child is allergic to, and you actually end up inadvertently killing your own child, who is only six months old. And it's like, what are the chances of that happening? So, you know, not only have you... Not only is your relationship with your husband falling apart, but you guys have also you not not you guys. It's you. You've killed your child, and it's it's really sad, you know, because they couldn't have known that this baby had an allergy to that specific flower so soon. But also, like, you could have just poked your head in and checked, because she said that she was going to do that, and Eric was like, "Oh no, it's fine. Like, she's a baby. She's fine." And Susan's like, "Yeah, okay, I guess you're right." And it's like, I'm not trying to minimize the fact that their baby died, but like, you just had to poke your head in. It, it is it is really tragic, though. No, it is. Um, the intruder comes back, and he takes Mitz. Oh, yeah. And then before that, though, we learned that two days later, Eric left and never came back. Um, right. He just kind of went to the woods and drank himself to death. Um, so she lost her child and her husband back to back. He drank himself dead. So the intruder comes in and takes Mitzi out of the room and is basically uh, has her in a noose and is ready to kill her. He comes in and he gets you and he gestures to the piano because he wants you to play it. Um, I thought that was kind of peculiar. Yeah, and he doesn't talk either. He just like makes these grunts and like screams and wails. It's, I don't know, it doesn't this was too bizarre for me to work. And like, if he was more fleshed out into being like, yes, this is the admirer, then maybe, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but you're, you're right. He does. He wants you to play on the piano. Uh, Mitzi is in the noose standing on the chair. Uh, the implication being, he wants to hear you play before he kills the two of you, but you play the piano and the cats come and a group of cats inexplicably come and eat the man alive. Like, they jump, they are cats, they jump on him, and he just goes down like like a brick. He does, and, and that's basic. I don't want to say it's basically how this chapter ends, but you get the chair, and you save Mitzi um, by pulling her up onto the chair, because you yourself are not strong enough to just free her yourself, so you get her on the chair. It's so silly. Like, it's it's beyond silly. Like, like I know you don't have a cat, Ben, but, like, I have a cat, and, like, I'm a grown man. And, you know, I love my cat very much, and I would never do anything to hurt her. But if, if one day she, like, was possessed by the desire to kill me, I could take her. Like, she's not going right. to jump on me and take me down. Like, I'm sorry. Sorry, Aries, but, like, I, I, could, I, could, I could take my cat. Do you, th- you could take a cat. I, under the right circumstances, yeah. Yeah, well, of course, Ben. I mean, we <laughs> we would never hurt an animal. Like, that's not who we are. No, that's fair. But if it was between your life and a cat that was trying to take your life, I mean, you could you could take a cat. I, I don't understand how this group of cats, like, took this grown man down in an instant. There's blood everywhere, too. <laughs> it's so ridiculous.
So now we find ourselves in chapter six, also known as the Legend of the Cat Widow. Um, and this this is where we actually utilize the map that you have drawn up with Mitzi earlier. And it shows all of the flats in the building in which you live. And um, yeah, you're trying to find this Eye of Adam character who Mitzi suspects is in the building. Yeah, and this is also the longest chapter by quite a wide margin. Um, and, you know, I've gone back and forth over whether I think the pacing works. Um, I think I've landed on it doesn't. What do you think? I I think the pa- the pacing of this particular chapter, that is? Yes, yeah. Okay. I was going to say the game as a whole, eh, all right, but this particular chapter's pacing... Um, actually, have you played Oxen Free, Rick? Uh, no, just its predecessor, Ollie Ollie. There we go. Had a boy. Um, Oxen Free. One of the problems with Oxen Free is that you, in my opinion, it's a great game. It's beautiful, but the fact that you can't really fast transport like anywhere, and you can you have to go very very long distance. Um, in this this game, it this this particular scene I felt was laborious. So, yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, the thing about this whole chapter is like. I liked the world building and exploring the different flats and, and meeting the people, um, especially re- a tick goal. But it like <laughs> you start off with the premise you're looking for somebody and then there's this big new premise of the cat widow, um, that whole like, what do you call it, urban folktale. Um, but then you kind of drop that and do a bunch of other stuff for a while. And then you, inex- not inexplicably, but then you just jut right back to it seemingly out of nowhere like once you have no options left i don't know it to me that this is not the weakest chapter but i think just because of the pacing it i really didn't like going through this and it ends with a really bizarrely comic like sitcom style comedy scene where they're all out in the in the dark what was up with that yeah that was like the game's like haha we're going to be directly funny and it was like uh is this really the best time for this? Like, all right, Scooby-Doo, settle down. Yeah, it, it it didn't match the rest of the game at all. Which, you know, is not to say that everything has to be shoehorned and fit perfectly. But but this, this, this scene, I mean, one thing that is cool is the fact that we learned that Mitzi is a, quote, like, master lockpicker. I kind of liked that aspect. So in your inventory, you now have the map of the flats that you've drawn up. And you have the option of using Mitzi. Yeah, yeah, Mitzi will help you get into these different flats as we search for the Eye of Adam. So let's let's get into it. Um, and let's go in relative order, I suppose. Um, the first place you can start is the ground floor. Um, and down there you meet the dog lady. She is, uh, she's a real see you next Tuesday. I think I said that already earlier in this podcast, but. Um, said it about someone else, yeah. Yeah, I would reserve it for the dog lady. She's super mean, um, almost needlessly so to Susan. Um, but she is saying that your cats are hanging out on this floor and being a nuisance to her dog, William. Um, I, I hate William. I don't even know William. Um, but you have to find a way to get her to leave somehow. But you can't do that just right now. Yeah, I mean, I it kind of felt a little bit forced to also have this woman named Dog Lady, but what do I know? Um, so at this at this point, yeah, you you've got to use William to your advantage. 
Uh, but the woman, the dog lady, is sweeping up the floor on the ground floor, which whether she's there or not, I don't know if you noticed, Rick, but there is someone using the broom and sweeping. Oh, gotcha. No, I didn't notice that. They just, they're playing the audio as if someone is sweeping, and that bothered me a little bit. Um, but hey, it's all right. So yeah, there's the dog lady on the first floor. Did you want to talk about each floor? Or did you just want to talk about this like in order of events and what you've got to do? Um, I'm not, I think you can approach this in different ways. Why don't we just go chronologically and go to flat one next? So flat one is empty. Um, the Morrisons used to live here. Um, there's a sofa in the hallway with cats that are climbing all over it. And the Morrisons left a nice note, um, to flat two, which belongs to the dog lady. Um, basically saying like, yeah, you know, they said they're going to come pick it up. I hope you don't mind. I mean, it's not that big of an inconvenience, certainly not as much as your dogs have been anyway. Like, just perfectly passive-aggressive Britishness. Um, but you you go into that flat. You find the wrench in there. You find a wrench. And um, eventually you're able to get into the sofa. The reason that these cats are all over this sofa is because there's valerian root that has been stuffed inside the sofa. Um, it was the Morrisons' like last little prank to get back at the dog lady, which I, I think is kind of funny. Um, and I didn't know cats were attracted to valerian root, so... Learn something new. Yeah, I had no idea. So so the cats are kind of going insane um, around this couch. Um, but before we can actually utilize it, we have to gather a few more things from other parts of the, um, the complex in which Susan lives. Yep. Um, right across from flat one is flat two. That's the dog ladies. You will get to what, what you do at flat two. Ben, do you want to take us up to the next floor with flats three and four? So the next floor up, we have Susan's flat, which she's sharing with Mitzi. And across the hall is Joe Davis. Joe Davis, um, I was kind of confused by his character, but but we'll kind of get to that because we don't yet break into Joe's room yet at this point, do we? No, no. Right now, Joe's room is locked, and Mitzi says it's a particularly advanced lock, so she can't pick it. Um, I, we're going to, we're going to approach some of the things out of order here just because, uh, you can kind of do this in, in differing orders. But if you stand in the empty apartment in flat one, you can look up into the ceiling and see a hole into flat three. So they cut a hole in their floor, um, slash flat one ceiling. And there's a cat statue that's like sitting right there. Um, you eventually have to get that cat statue down, um, and break it to get the key into flat three, but, uh, we're not quite there yet, but that is something that you need to do because Mitzi can't pick that lock. Correct. Um, and it looks like a cat statue, but we will say that eventually we learn that there's something, something suspicious about it. Um, but as, as Rick said, yes, Joe Davis's room, as we, we learned that it's his, um, it's too complicated of a lock, and in most scenarios, it's going to be the first door you check because it is directly across the hall from Susan, um, from Susan's place. So we can't we can't get into Joe's. So that leaves us um, two more floors worth of flats, five, six, and seven, and eight. Yeah. So the next floor up, um, flat number six. That's Brian, the guy that came and uh, accidentally got you killed earlier by calling pest control. Whoopsie. Um, we're not going to deal with him yet, Susan says, because she wants to give him, she wants to give him a real scare, basically. Uh, she wants to really fuck with the guy. Uh, rightfully so. He's kind of a dick. You do undo his bike pedal, 
uh, with the wrench so you can get, I don't know, the I don't remember what they call it. Uh, I just call it the bike pedal, um, but you need that. Flat five is the old man. Um, this is where you can pick up a rag that you need for a bit later. The old man doesn't hear so well, um, and it's it's kind of played for a little laugh where he's like, you'll have to speak up, I'm turning 85, and then you kind of yell and he's like, there's no need to shout, I can hear you. It's, I thought it was pretty funny. Yes, I liked that. That that was good humor and well-paced and well, well-placed. But he doesn't speak very coherently. Um, he, he kind of backtracks a lot of what he's saying. Um, it, it kind of gives you the uh, – it, it implies that he's kind of suffering from uh, dementia, uh, which is super sad. But he can't stay on topic so well. Um, but you can easily rule him out. He's not the guy that you're looking for. No, and that's something I thought was interesting is that whenever we were making the map with Mitzi, it seemed that we were ruling people out for sure, but we still found ourselves going to every door, which I I thought was a little, I don't want to say silly or redundant, but it didn't make much sense to me because I thought, well, why would we check with these people that we know aren't the person? Um, The last level of flats, uh, seven and eight, one of them, flat eight, has a baby in it. Um, That's pretty much what what we hear, what we know is going on up there. And then flat seven apparently is, is home to some, some violence and some suspicious noise that we hear. That's Jesse's apartment. Jesse. Uh, he's, he's a computer kid. Um, he makes a lot of noise with like music and, and shit like that. And they said they heard a gunshot at some point. The only way to get him out is by shutting off the electricity, but he comes out real quick to turn it back on. And if you try to talk to him, he'll be like, oh, I'll happily talk, but not right now because I'm busy. And then he goes right back in. So now we've kind of explored all of the flats, um, and it's time to go and do the series of events that will get us where we need to go. And that starts with the dog lady. Right. So we have the Valerian route, or at least the extract or whatever it is specifically. And we find uh, by flat five, there is a rag that is sitting on one of the heaters. We take this rag, and this is where the intuition kind of bothered me a little bit, but, you know, it makes sense at the end of the day. And you take the extract of the valerian root, and you you put it onto the rag, and you leave this rag outside of the dog lady's flat, which sends the cats over there, which drives the dog insane. And then you kind of get your little justice moment of like complaining at the dog lady and like, you know, being stinky to her. And then William, uh, her sweet prince or whatever she called him, uh, runs away and she leaves the broom behind, which is of importance for another item that we're going to work on getting. Yeah. Yeah. William just breaks out and dashes off and she's like, my sweet William and chases him. Uh, and basically, uh, you don't really hear from her again. <laughs> um, she's busy, I guess. But yeah, that gives you ample opportunity to take the broom and get into the basement. Um, down there, you find the extension cord. You also find a sewing dummy, which gives Susan the idea to get back at Brian by pretending to be the cat widow. I referred to this whole thing, the game, the cat lady, as like the crow-esque um, but this story of the cat widow is, it's very much like B version of the crow, um, basically. So for that, you need a tin of red paint, which is right there, but you can't take it until you open it for some reason. You need a dress that's black, scissors to alter the dress, and a mask. 
Now, you find the dress right there on the sewing dummy, and you could take it and just throw it into the coal chute in the basement, and that turns the dress black. So, boom. You've got that down. Um, you have to put it back on the dummy, which isn't readily apparent, but uh, we've got that. One item down. The other items will make themselves known in time, um, but we actually find the door to the basement uh, by moving. Isn't there a cabinet or like a bookshelf in the way, and you push it, and that's how you get to that door? Yep. Yeah, that's how you get there. Yeah, it's it's a little bit strange. Um, but, but you know, we, we start to get excited about this Legend of the Cat Widow, which we kind of put down and continue to, tra- to traverse the flats until we, you know, come back to the Cat Widow. It, it almost feels like an afterthought until it isn't. Um, but after we have the broom in hand and we go back up to the ground floor, uh, there's a mailbox uh, to the far left. And what we've got to do is ask Mitzi to break in and see if there's any mail that can ask uh, or if there's any mail that can work as hints. And whenever Mitzi's done, she gives you a letter to Joe and a letter to Pauline. Yeah, Joe's letter, I think, is about his uh, therapy appointments, I believe. Yes, Um, yes. But Pauline's is looking for a babysitter, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, so we're going to use that to our advantage here. Uh, This is where we go into the dog lady's apartment to double check whether or not she is the Eye of Adam. Uh, She's not. She doesn't own any electronics, so it can't be her. And now, now is when earlier I mentioned the hole in the ceiling of flat one. Now is where we go back and do that. We knock the cat statue down with the broom. We get the key. And now we're up to flat three. We're going to check in mysterious flat three belonging to Joe Davis. Yeah, this, this, I'm not going to lie, this scene did a good job with suspense to me, this whole flat, because you go in and you, there's this gaping hole in the floor that you have to go around because that's, um, you know, that's the, the, the room from which we just basically knocked the, the cat statue. Actually, you know, we have this key from the cat statue, uh, that from the hole, but we have to walk around this hole carefully. This, this flat is in tatters. It is not in great shape. Um, the more we walk through it, you know, you kind of walk through it slowly with Mitzi, which kind of builds the intensity surrounding surrounding the moment. And then there's a door uh, with no doorknob, and it says 666 on it, and there is a computer that has no power source to it, if I'm not mistaken. The power lead is missing. Um, so Mitzi says that she thinks that she has one that is similar, so she'll just go get it and she'll be right back, and you are supposed to wait there for her. Um, but of course, you know... After examining everything in the room, you realize that there's nothing to really do. So you go to the entrance of the uh, of the flat, and the doorknob comes off in your hand. And uh, this is pretty intuitive. You take it to the door in the room that you were standing that has the computer. Yeah, the door with 666. It's like, how do we make this scene creepy? Oh, just, just throw a 666 in there. Why not? Whatever. Um, Mitzi also gives Susan the idea of thinking of a vegetable while she's gone. Um, this is not very important now, but it, it plays into the plot later in a nice little way. Um, but you go into the door with 666, and it's a bathroom. There's a mannequin in the tub, and that tub is overflowing, uh, which is bizarre. You take the power lead that's all the way to the right, and then you hear Joe come home. And then things start to get a bit surreal. The lights start to dim on and off, and you see this convulsing... Uh, apparition next to the toilet that is clearly not in the best of health like it looks like it's severely injured and it's kind of rioting on the floor so this is a sign that things are going to get kind of weird 
Um, and then you go out and you bump into Joe. We meet Joe Davis. And Joe immediately gets suspicious and pressuresome and kind of murdery. He the first thing he says is like, You are you're a stranger in his apartment, and he yells, You are not supposed to be here. And it's like acted basically just like that. It's so bad. Yeah, it's we get two different Joe Davises from the same person, which is what was so confounding to me. Yeah, I it 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 just kind of struck me funny, and it's not like oh wow he played two different parts really well. It's he played one in a very confusing way, and one in a way that was like oh okay well this is this is actually not so bad. Now that we're talking about it out loud, sorry to cut you off, Ben. I I wonder because we got letters from his psychiatrist. Um, I wonder if it's not a case of like schizophrenia or something like that because even you know in in the dream we get a completely docile and well-spoken Joe Davis, which is not here. And even in this conversation, he does a real hard left turn from calling you a stupid evil bitch, screaming at you, and then he just goes, who are you? <laughs> like like you're like you're a lost friend at dinner or something. So I wonder if that's not the case. It's, it is a little bit strange. Um, but he, he puts pressure on you, and he's kind of backing you up in his apartment because, you know, you can't face forward, so you're, you're walking backwards, and you fall into the hole, and that's when you are in this place called the Quiet Haven Hotel, and you wake up in this room where there are four doors, and above each door, um, it says, came through here, devil, and you have to open them in the right order, because it was the game that came before this was uh, devil came through here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick is nodding, for those of you who can't hear him nodding. Um, I can always hear him nodding. But you do these doors in the right order, and the last door that opens, you walk through, and that's where we meet the very, very, very different Joe. Yeah, I don't even think there's an order. I think you just open them one by one, and the last one will let you through, but you can't close them while you go, or it resets the whole thing, which was weird to me but also i don't know why i was closing doors in this game you know i'm i guess i'm just such a polite gentleman i'm such a nice guy very nice boy (laughs) um no i'm just kidding anyway um so yeah like we said you find joe and he's surprisingly coherent in a very disheveled room with a chunk of the wall missing um looking out into the storm uh you can sort of talk to him a little bit about what's going on you're in a hotel, like Ben said, called Quiet Haven. It's a real dump. Um, his wife has been in the room over to the left doing her makeup for a week or a month. Joe doesn't really seem to be so sure. He wants to leave, but she just gets angry at him whenever he tries to suggest leaving um, and, like, snaps at him. So he's like, yeah, you should uh, you should talk to her. Um, it's also worth noting that there are, there is, uh, red handprints. There are red handprints on the wardrobe next to, uh, the room. They are in a pattern. You can't notice the pattern here right this second, but they're in a pattern of right, right, left, right, right. Uh, which is some sort of drum paradiddle, I'm sure. Or drum rudiment, excuse me. I mean, I still got what you meant. It could have been a paradiddle for all I know. I didn't major in it. Yeah, I majored in paradiddle. Um, mm. <laughs> you, you, you can para, paradiddle. I hardly know her. Um, Joe's, there it is. There it is. Joe's wife is um, 
she's sitting in the chair. Um, how? What did you think of this scene? It's very normal. No, it was not. <laughs> it was actually pretty unsettling. She she's kind of in this. I don't know if the word is possessed or if she's a, a monster at this point, Rick. What was what were your thoughts? I mean, so at this point, what I had assumed was that the fall through the floor had killed Susan. So we're in one of those surreal, here's how we get back to life things. Um, yeah. But we learned pretty quickly that, like, the timeline gets kind of fucked up, to quote The Sopranos. We'll, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I loved this scene. I thought this was great. She, when you interact with her, she like seizes and shrieks in a very unnatural way. Um, she shrieks the word misery. And, you know, normally this wouldn't mean a whole lot. But one thing that we could observe as we came into Joe's apartment is he's a big Stephen King fan. So we put two and two together pretty quickly to open up the novel Misery. And inside we find that it's been hollowed out. There's a screwdriver in there. So we take that. Yes, so inside of that book, Misery, which I didn't know, I was not familiar with that book. We we find our screwdriver, um, and we enter the room on the left. Go ahead, what were you going to say? You had a question. I don't have a question. I'm just surprised that you've never heard of Misery, like not even the film? No, I, I've not been exposed to as much Stephen King as I should be. It's I'm not a humongous fan of his. I think he's good, um, but Misery is probably one of his better known works. It's got a very fa- very famous uh, foot scene. It's probably a good way to explain that and subvert your expectations when you actually see it. I'm very excited now. So we re-enter the room um, on the the room to the left where his wife is, and we use the screwdriver to get into the panel. Inside of this panel or on this panel, there are these two switches, and you're looking at them trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. Well, don't forget the handprints that are in the other room. I don't understand how these are necessarily like how you're supposed to put this together. I mean, I guess you, you've got slim pickings for clues, but I thought it was interesting because there's no explanation as to why the handprints are there. But if you do the order of the handprints, which is pulling the right switch twice, the left switch, and then the right switch again, and you might need to pull that right, right switch one more time depending on how the game functions for you. I, I know what I know what guide that you're quoting when you say that. I think that guide is just wrong because if you look over above the door um, that you walk into on the far right of the of the hotel room, there's another right hand print. So I, I think the pattern is just right, right, left, right, right. Yeah, I, I was going to say I definitely had to do right, right, left, right, right. I had to do it. And so that's why whenever I read that in the guide, I was like, I think that's just I think they are just wrong. I think that it it is exactly those five things. So, um, yeah, thanks for calling that out. So, so be mindful of your, of your game guides, everybody, especially, um, this, this game, as we talked about, it's, we're not here to yuck anyone's yum for using game guides. That's a silly thing to do. Um, but this, this game, uh, got a little bit, um, contorted with what you've got to do at some points. Um, and so were the instructions. Um, but what ends up happening is, um, yeah, at, at this point, she's kind of seizing a little bit more after you do all of these switches. Um, and shortly thereafter, Joe comes into the room. Yeah, and she's she's looking into all of the mirrors and being reflected. Um, and her face looks very much like um, an illustration from Scary Stories to Tell After Dark. So Joe comes in and he says, this isn't my wife. This is the monster that's been following me. 
Um, and he, he asks you to strangle it with the power lead, or he's going to shoot you. Uh, this is where he gets violent again. And you can actually do either. Uh, what did you choose to do? I was just going to ask you. I, mm, I actually did strangle her, which is not generally my first choice of things, but I did strangle her. Oh, cool. Good. So I did the opposite. I refused, um, and Joe just shoots you straight up. So what happens when you strangle her? Whenever I strangled her, n- nothing really happened. He he was it was fine. We were back in the same place, basically in in the flat three. It was it was really kind of bizarre because I take it you you were transported somewhere, right? Yeah. So instantly you get transported back to flat three um, with Mitzi, okay. um, and she said that you know she was only gone for a minute when she went to get the laptop charging cable. And, yeah, nothing happened. Um, So what that's implying is that you hallucinated or dreamt or, you know, uh, insert verb here, that whole interaction with Joe and and everything that happened, that didn't happen in quote-unquote reality. And, you know, that's just inconsistent with how that's been set up um, throughout the game so far. You know what I mean? That really stuck out to me. No, it kind of bothered me because I... They they built him up, and I'm fine with them subverting my expectations and him not being the eye of Adam, but I really, I, it it kind of discounted what has happened earlier in the game with the alternate realities, in my opinion. Yeah, just it's just another inconsistency of the game, um, perhaps due to being rushed. I don't know, but we can rule out. Um, well, no, we don't rule out that. It's Joe. No, we do. We do. With the power cable, Mitzi looks at the laptop. It's not Joe. Yes. Um, so now we're going up to flat number eight with Pauline. Yes. You can go to your inventory and read the letter uh, to Pauline from the, um, I don't remember what the name of the business that Rita Teco is from, but they're uh, writing back that they're going to send somebody out to come and speak to her about babysitting her daughter because it's just Pauline and her daughter. Um, so you go up to the fourth floor, you go to flat eight, and uh, Mitzi does the talking here, and she is you're playing as Mitzi now for all intents and purposes. And, uh, and you're having this conversation with Pauline, and Pauline's kind of confused, but she decides to give you an interview kind of on the spot. Um, so you and Susan go, you as Mitzi, and Susan go into the flat, but there's a knock at the door, so Susan uh, offers to go and see who it is. And that's when we meet Rita Tickle. Yeah, this is just a comically bad vocal performance. Um, She's from the agency. Basically, she's like the perfect candidate. Um, But because it serves our needs, we send her away and continue to uh, trick this single mother whose maternity pay is being cut because that's what we need to do. (laughs) Um, Just to expedite this, um, you do a set of subversions between washing your hands, um, getting sick, being afraid of the dark, etc., um, just to get to the laptop um, that belongs to Pauline, so we can check it. Um, Rita comes back once more, um, and we do end up sending her away. Rita calls... This is probably the worst line in the game, in my opinion. Um, maybe next to, like, the cats have nine lives thing, but Rita says, like, you're evil, you're going to hell... And Susan just goes, yeah, I'm evil, but you're thick. And I, I yeah. laughed so <laughs> fucking hard 
Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, I know it's 2012, <laughs> and I know, like, fat shaming in 2012 was, like, nowhere near as taboo as it is today. But come on. It's so bad. Someone consciously decided to make that the comeback. Ridiculous. Yeah, I... That doesn't that doesn't track for me. Um, ultimately, we find the scissors in Pauline's flat, and we need these scissors. If you can remember the 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 big thing that we put down and and kind of not even put on the back burner, but could just threw on the granite countertops and just said, ah, "I'll deal with you later." Of the cat widow story, we get the scissors, but we don't just use them on the uh, the cat widow portion of the story. We actually use these scissors. To cut the power, I don't know if it's to the entire building or if it's just to the flats up top. I think it's just to the flats up top. But yeah, we we cut the power. This leads to everybody going out into the lobby. Um, Jesse comes out and says he'll drive to the electronics store, which is open late. He's going to fix everything. Uh, Rita is back inexplicably. And, you know, (sighs) everybody's meeting in the dark. It's, It's real sitcom. And, like, Rita just lets out one final... Hello, and the 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 whole scene just ends. It's so out of place. It is, but we go into we go into the now vacant flat seven. Uh, that is Jesse's flat, and we go to the end of his flat. It's pretty nice, and there's a there's a computer, but we can't use it. Why? Because we cut the power. So we use um. We do see a mask. We do see a tree of, like, three masks, and we have to take one. I don't know if it matters which mask you take, but I took the hockey mask. Even so, the only way that we can get power to his computer is by um, throwing an extension cable down out of the window, uh, which we have to chase down to the first floor. We go all the way to the end. of the- I thought we'd be done with the first floor by now, but no. We go all the way to the end. We get the power cable, the extension cord from that top flat plug it in downstairs and that's how we get power to the uh to the laptop while jesse is away and we basically learn from that that jesse is not the eye of adam yes so that only leaves brian's apartment um brian (laughs) i didn't think this was super obvious to immediately go back down and do um cat widow stuff but that's what you have to do now um, so you've got the screwdriver, you can open the red paint. Boom. Um, if you haven't already done the dress in the laundry chute, you have to do that. Boom. You mean the coal chute? Yes, that is what I mean. Thank you. I was going to say, it's got to be dark. It's the literal opposite of a laundry chute. Can't be clean! <laughs> you can, um, you put it on to the mannequin, you cut it up a little bit. Um, did you mention that we take a mask from Jesse's apartment? Yes, and I said that I took the hockey mask. Which did you take the hockey mask to? Yes. Is it? Do you have to take that one? I don't know. I didn't go back and replay, so I'm not sure. I don't think I'll ever know. But you've got everything, and at this point, um, Susan recounts the entire tale of the Cat Widow to Mitzi. The first half just is kind of exposition, and then like towards the middle, um, where the actual revenge starts taking place, it becomes like real time where. Susan's narrating what she's doing to Brian. And you have some choices in here. So if you say something too ridiculous, um, Mitzi will say, like, that didn't happen. So, like, at one point, I said that there was, like, a giant zombie cat on Brian's bed. 
And like it showed that and it was hilarious. And Mitzi was like, that didn't fucking happen. And Susan's like, yeah, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, That was genuinely funny to me because like the giant zombie cat is like as big as the entire bed and just has this big dopey smile. It's pretty funny. But it basically, you know, it, it ends. Um, she comes in, writes cat killer on his door, um, does all this stuff to make his apartment seem haunted. Um, and it ends with her confronting him in the full costume and he faints. And then it kind of flashes forward to them recounting it. And it turns out it's not Brian either. Mitzi checked his laptop and only found porn. So it's nobody. Classic. Yeah, classic Brian. Classic Brian. So that that's just it. We get to the end of the story. They're having a good laugh about what they've done. Um, so we go back to our own flat. And there's a note that's pinned to the door. But then you go into the you go into your own flat and you make yourselves coffee. And I kind of liked this scene where you're spending time um, with Mitzi. I, I don't know. This this was kind of nice. Yeah, that's yeah. That's not how this chapter ended for me. Is that how it ended for you? I at least thought it was. I, I could be mixing this up with something else, but I thought that's how it ended for me. So the note tells you to meet at midnight in flat five. So we're going back to the old guy's flat. Um, so we don't know what that is. This, this chapter, at least for me, ended, um, with Joe and there is a beaten, bloody, uh, naked woman, um, who he refers to as Ivy. This didn't happen for you? I don't remember this at all. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, so they're in a room. So maybe we got different endings. They're in a room, um, and Ivy is like on the floor chained to something. She's beaten and bloody and naked and he keeps. Oh, wait. Yes. Okay. Joe keeps saying how much he loves her and he'll make everything better. And then she gets shocked by the generator she's chained up to. Um, that's never expanded upon as far as I know. Um, and I don't remember getting any backstory as to who Ivy was. So no idea why this is here. No, it's. Yeah, I did have that scene. That was a, a mis-memory on my part. I do remember. I was like, Joe and Ivy, no, I didn't have that. And then um, I, I may or may not have blocked it from my mind. But yeah, it was, I don't know if Ivy's supposed to be his wife or what, but it was it was a little bit disturbing. This brings us to our final chapter, chapter seven, Don't Feed the Troll. This one is pretty short, and this is also where you'll get your endings. So... You, you have two choices in this chapter that determine your ending. Um, three of them are quote-unquote bad. One of them is quote-unquote the golden ending. I really, really dislike terminology like that, like calling something a golden ending in general or a bad ending um, because that's not how morality works. But nevertheless, the golden ending, did you look this up, Ben? I did not look it up, so please do inform me. The golden ending is that both Susan and Mitzi survive. Mitzi's cancer just miraculously goes away. So we had mentioned earlier that Mitzi had six months to live in the quote-unquote golden ending. It just goes away, um, and she's fine, and she's back, and she's happy and healthy, and she lives forever, or, or as long as you know humans do. That's just ridiculous to me. That's like, this game is problematic in its depictions of depression anyway, because it, like, is showing the quote-unquote source of Susan's depression, and, like, that's not how mental illness works. There's not always an event that 
causes depression. Like it's a chemical imbalance, but it's also now implying like, you know, cancer, eh, you'll get better, but depression is what's bad. And it's like, no, (laughs) cancer is quite bad too. It's very real. We, we all know this. Like, it, 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 I, I just, it doesn't seem like they thought about this at all. Like, what quality control did they put this through, you know? Yeah, no, it was, um, and I appreciate what they, the attention that they drew to mental health, but the fact that in a golden ending that someone is just miraculously healed of cancer, that's, and that's not me trying to be cynical. Like, this is just me being realist, like. And again, there are cases in which somebody is healed, but that's, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like you know what I'm saying, Rick, because you've known me for about 10 years now. I know precisely what you're saying. It it, it was just mishandled, and I think we can leave it at that. Um, this last chapter is pretty short, so let's get through it. So Susan and Mitzi go into the flat from the note. Um, there's privacy notices all over one of the doors in there, and the old man is in the kitchen. And he's now suddenly much more, much more coherent. I don't know why I got suddenly twangy there. No, keep going. I like it. Yeah, we're going to keep that in. Yeah, he's super coherent. Um, I think he was playing an act before. He says that the eye of Adam is his son, or more appropriately, he says Adam is his son. And he's done his best to raise him right, but after his mom died, things just went downhill. And he says, you know, Adam's in his room. He's got this whole place bugged so he can hear and everything we're saying and see us. And he says, you know, Adam's a monster. You know, he'll never kill me. He he wouldn't dare do that. Um, but, you know, he'll kill you if you don't get out of here. And he says, you know, Adam gave this to me. I need him to see that I'm giving it to you. He makes that very clear. And he gives you a box. And when you open the box, what do you find in there? You find a gas mask, which is worth mentioning. Whenever you enter and you're, you're walking through the flat, there's a fish tank that has chemical like giant tanks on either side of this fish tank that are full of uh, fluid chemical which you know now that i've put two and two together that's the same combination most likely that mitzi tells us about earlier in the game um so you're handed you're handed a, a box and inside of this box is a gas mask um and almost immediately after you know susan is telling mitzi that they have to they have to get out of there like we we have to leave but the gas starts to happen um the canisters are emptying and uh there's a gas going through the flat rick what did you do with the gas mask because it gives you a couple of options you either keep the gas i mean the old man they're like yeah whatever old man um the game just like (laughs) throws him out he wouldn't dare kill me well um literally he is the only (laughs) assured death what did you do with the gas mask rick yeah, so I know for a fact that you and I got different endings because I can't see your last achievement on Steam. But I did the thing that the game wants you to do. I gave the gas mask to Mitzi because Susan's going to come back, right? What is that? What I didn't did? know. I felt like she wouldn't. I felt like she wasn't going to come back this time, so I kept it. You killed Mitzi. Oh, shit. I, I did. Well, I didn't. Adam did. But in this moment, I was like... Mm, and Mitzi was like, I'm going to die anyway. And I was like, I don't want you to die. I said, but at the same time, I don't know what would happen. Because the game the game kept saying, you know, make sure you're saving like at every other moment. And I was like, well, I forgot to save before this happened. So I might as well uh, just oh, keep going. So what? That's interesting. Yeah. So you went and confronted Adam directly after this. Okay. So I'm wondering, did you get 
did you miss the last Queen of Maggots scene? No, I still saw her once more. When did you see her? Because this is this is where I saw her next. You saw you saw her a- after really because you die um right there. Um wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, sorry. You you die right there and you awake in the fi- in a field just like you did in the beginning. And that's when you confront the Queen of Maggots once more. That's so interesting. When did you next see her? I saw the Queen of Maggots um let me see here, just to make sure I've got everything as straight as possible, which is not something I say terribly often. It just heads up, you're bumping into your mic, and it's I can hear it. What's w- that? W- your arm is bumping into your mic, and it's very audible. Oh, oh no, somebody is setting off fireworks. Oh, good. Because it's a Saturday night in Westview, Pennsylvania. I'm trying to remember. I, I For the life of me, Rick, I don't know why I can't remember, if it's just because I played it too quickly. But I don't remember. See- I don't remember seeing her immediately. That's okay. It's the same scene, so let's just talk about it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you walk and you meet the Queen of Maggots again, and she tells you, you know, you know how this goes: blow out a candle, a soul for a soul. But she says there's only two candles left, and if you pick the wrong one, it's your life that's going to end. And she'll tell you, you know, you can ask. I don't. I don't know which is the right one. How do I know? And she's like, you don't. You can't because that's life. Nothing is fair. And that's kind of expanding upon the uh, pest control man with, with his quote, you know, life's a real fucker sometimes. I'm a big fan of that kind of um, through line in games, that that kind of mentality that like, yeah, you know, life isn't fair. You're not, it's not always going to play out cinematically. Shit sucks. And that's what's happening here. And you can choose to blow one out or refuse. It doesn't really matter. I, I, I refused. You refused? Yeah, yeah, I told her I'm stronger than her and I don't need her. This is kind of where the Queen of Maggots as a metaphor for depression breaks down because, like, here, she's just kind of an all-powerful being, like a monster. She, You're conquering a, you're conquering a, a, a literal monster. Like, this, ha- this is no longer anything to do with depression. Yeah. I did blow out a candle. I blew out the middle candle, I guess, the right of the two candles that I had left. Oh, so who died? I think it was another person in a hospital, if I'm not mistaken. You are back with Mitzi, and Mitzi rightfully is like, hey, what the fuck? And this is a perfect opportunity for you to tell Mitzi, like, this is what's happening. This is why I freaked out whenever you came into my apartment the first time. This is why it seems like I have great luck. Instead, what Susan says is, everyone knows cats have nine lives. Well, apparently so do cat ladies. And I'm down to my last one, so we have to make this count. One, that's corny as fuck. Two, Susan didn't die eight times, so I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, it, it's like this is, <laughs> this could have been such a cool moment, and instead they do this. And Mitzi's response is no better because Mitzi says, "Wow, that's crazy. You're so crazy, Mrs. A." And it's like, you just learned that she comes back from the dead. What the fuck? Like, motherfucker, are you not going to question this? You're just going to be like, Haha, yeah, that's wild, dude. Like, come on. What? So uh, I like a lot of this game, but so much. The, the stuff that I don't like is like, it's so obviously a misstep or a mishandle. You know what I mean? I would agree. For, so so you, you did confront Adam, though, correct? Yes, this is where um, both Mitzi and I went in to confront Adam. 
See, and I confronted Adam alone because Mitzi for me had died. So what happened in yours? I went in there and basically gave him a stern talking to about everything he had done and, you know, said like, you know, you think that you're helping people through suicide, but you're forcing people to commit it and you're causing all of these issues. And um, I'm going to, you know, I think it was like shut down the computer and make sure that you never, ever get to do this again. And I'm going to call for someone to come and take you away and care for you because you can't even take care of yourself. Um, because I had the choice of either killing him or not killing him, and I chose to not. Okay, so we had very different endings, it seems. Um, what happened in mine was when Mitzi and you walk in there. So we should say, I have Adam. Um, he has some sort of condition. Um, I think it might be ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He's wheelchair bound. Um, he's completely paralyzed, and he interacts with his computer via an eye camera. Um, this is actually real technology, too. One of my favorite um, guitarists and composers, uh, Jason Becker, has unfortunately has this disease and does the exact same thing. Um, it's extraordinarily sad. Um, but his music is very good. Anyway, um, so that's how he interacts. Mitzi says some really un- really discolored comments. She calls him a pathetic wheelchair-bound invalid. Um, and then she's like, is this a joke? Like, she's surprised that this is the villain. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. But anywho's, um, she pulls out a gun and she's like, I'm going to kill you. And I have Adam on his computer types do it. Um, and she keeps like pressing him. Like, do you know what you've done? Like, you've hurt so many people. How can you live with yourself? And he'll say something like, pull the trigger. You'll find out how I live with myself. Um, so he wants you to kill him. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty cool showdown. I almost wish I would have had your scene. You notice that there's oxygen tanks everywhere. So Susan is like, Mitzi, if you shoot him, we're going to die. And Mitzi is like, I'm going to shoot him. And so you can either talk her down or say, fine, do it. Um, So I said, fine, do it. So Mitzi shoots him. It blows an entire hole in the wall of the apartment. um, And both Mitzi and Adam die in that. Susan miraculously escapes unscathed she doesn't even die and come back to life like she has before she the way that she says it in the epilogue is she was like towards the back of the room and she just gets blown out um mitzi is in the middle of the room with adam they both die man yeah now that now that you say all this i am remembering leaving the room and and um after the kitchen scene, after the gas scene, exiting the room and seeing like the forest and the deer and all that stuff, and then meeting the queen of maggots, and then having the one-on-one confrontation. Oh. So thanks for jarring. Yep. Thank you for jarring my memory. And that's kind of the end of the game. Then we get the post-credits. Well, not the post-credits, then we get the epilogue. Um, the epilogue is Susan typing and giving a voiceover um, for her blog. Basically, uh, what happens is she quote-unquote discovers social media um, and joins like a group for folks with depression and makes friends and now she's not alone anymore and she goes out from time to time Um, you're also visiting a grave at the end if Mitzi dies it's kind of implied that it's her grave but if Mitzi doesn't die like i.e. the golden ending it's implied to be your child's grave that you visit with Mitzi from time to time which is which is nice admittedly as ridiculous as cancer just miraculously going away is it is nice um 
what I and another thing that I don't like is she kind of at the end says, you know, I'll live with this invisible illness maybe for the rest of my life, but one day it'll all be gone and you know, I'll be all happy. And I I don't know. I I think at this point I was just so um tired of how they were handling um mental health and cancer and depression and everything that I just didn't give this a pass, but that's what happens at the end. Um, there was one particular line that I liked at least, and it was a, uh, you fall and rise again. That was at least in, in my uh, closing scene. That was one thing that Susan had said, and I thought that was important. But no, I, I think that there was some definite mishandling of the mental health subjects. I think the golden ending stuff, again, I don't like the idea of it being ranked that way, especially because that's just saying, well, everyone lives, so it's the golden ending. No, I, I don't. And in some ways, it's not as powerful because, like, you went through all of that for what? You know, there you, there are no consequences to anything you've gone through. Right. And, like, yeah, I, this is one of those games, like, you can – there's really good psychology in games and really good, like, approaches to things. But then there is stuff where it's just mishandled. And th- this one felt that way to me. Um it's nice that she's in a, quote, brighter place by the end of the game um, and that she's learned to, you know, work with herself and to live with herself and to address things. But, you know, good good messaging, I guess, but still, I don't know. I, I found myself very, very tired of this game, especially because I couldn't just take pauses in moments where I needed to pause. It, it, it wore me out and it made me forget things because of my fatigue, to be frank. I'm right there with you. I, I, I too was, when I was done with the game, I was glad to be done. And I was like, I'm not gonna, you know, go back and replay this anytime soon. One thing that I did like is at the very end after the credits is you get a prompt that says, press any key to live, um, which is a nice end cap when you're dealing with yes. a subject like depression. That's good. Um, and that causes the, the game to, you know, just quit the desktop. Clever. And that is the cat lady. That's it. That is the cat lady, everyone. I'm I'm with you, Ben. I like I said, this is about as low of a seven as I could possibly go. I don't want to call it a six, although I, I maybe it is to me. I again, it's it's totally arbitrary, but a lot of stuff that this game does well. A lot of stuff that this game does not do well. Yeah, and that's and that's just it between story inconsistencies and then some of the lack of intuition and some of the stuff that was just, I don't want to say straight up broken, but like hearing some dialogues like play twice and like, there were some like pretty blaring. I I think I saw a few spelling errors and grammatical mistakes too, but I'm just going to get picky about those because I don't know. There were, their standards are worth being held to. I think all in all, not a bad way to start off our spooky October month. It's all spooks from here. Yeah, next up we're going to At Dead of Night. That's a Ben pick. It is. It is a it is a Ben pick and I'm looking forward to playing it and covering it and experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah, it should be fun and then we're going to end the month um with something that I suspect might win or get to the finals of our bracket, Amnesia: The Dark Descent. Yes, yes. So, please Please keep participating on our Instagram page for our Spooky Games Bracket. We're taking games today and tomorrow, 
And then starting on the 11th, you're going to see the full bracket. And from that point onward, we're going to start to vote day by day until there is only one left. So we hope that, uh, I mean, and if, and if a game like Amnesia wins and we're already playing it, then we can do like a, you know, a, a, a true dissection of it later on. But we'll start with, um, you know, we'll do some reviews and whatnot. But anyhow, yes, vote for your favorite scary games. That's all. Yeah, yeah, and like we say at the end of every podcast, first of all, thank you for listening. Um, We appreciate you very much, and this is why we do this, is for folks like you. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way is our Instagram, which has the handle of Pixel Project Radio Podcast. Uh, That's where we're most active online. That's where you can participate in all of Ben's polls um, and all of our posts, too. Absolutely. You can also get a hold of us by email if you feel like, um, you know, sharing some thoughts, sharing some games, um, agreeing, disagreeing, email us. And you can do that by emailing us at pixelprojectradio at gmail.com. Yeah, boy. And then, you know, finally, if if you're so inclined, please do give us a share with your friends. Um, share a link. Tell them about us. Uh don't just tell them about us and think that they'll click on it. Um, people are lazy, and if you give them something to click, they'll click it, as opposed to just checking it out on their own, um, myself included. Um, so do share if you like what we're doing. That's the best way to make us happy. Absolutely it is, and um, it is my dream that for our very last vote in this bracket that we can get between 50 and 100 people voting. That would be an absolute dream. So I'm saying that to you, but I'm also saying that to anyone who's listening. And uh, also, I really can't wait for the Nine Inch Nails outro that's probably starting sometime around, I don't know, maybe now. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, the credits song isn't as bad, but I guess since you ask so nicely, we'll find we'll find something fitting. Something that makes me want to wear acid wash jeans or something like that. I don't know. Ugh. Well, on that note, what what a better way to go out. My name is Rick Firestone. My name is Ben Bugale, and uh, thanks for listening.